Hello and welcome to a special edition of As You Were, a podcast about Alkaline Trio. I'm Tim Crisp. I'm the host of As You Were, a podcast about Alkaline Trio. I'm here with my my teaching assistant, David Anthony. I'm hoping next year to have a degree. You You keep quiet for a second. So you're listening to what we would like to call a preview, a glimpse, an enticement, a giveaway, truly, of our very first Patreon-exclusive episode of the podcast. This is non-canonical to the traditional podcast feed because really, this is the start of a brand new path Mm -hmm. for the podcast. So before we get into what you're about to hear, let's talk about Patreon for a second. Patreon is a way for all of you out there to support the show, to help us, to not only live slightly less hand to mouth, but to also help us keep the show going. We've got servers to pay for, audio equipment, and also time that we put into it on top of the weekly demands of working, of life, of life and living. So if you have been enjoying the show, and want to help out patreon is a fun and innovative way to do so it works based on monthly pledges we have a few tiers of monthly dollar amounts for all y'all to choose from the first check it two dollars a month mm-hmm. an overpriced pack of gum It's basically 50 cents an episode to just say thanks down with what you're doing the second though is where it gets a little fun. For $5 a month, you get a bonus episode each month. And when I say a bonus episode, I'm not talking about David and I talking about a different Alkaline Trio song. I'm talking a mammoth motherfucker of audio content. We're going long form on these on Trio and Alkaline Trio adjacent topics. You want to hear an episode about the Matt Skiba and Kevin Second Split? Boy, do I. Pledge. And you're getting it. An episode about Tuesday? Yeah. Pledge. You want to hear an episode about jerk water? We're not going to do that. You want to hear an episode such as the one that you are about to enjoy? Pledge. That's a pretty sweet deal. I think it's a pretty, pretty good deal, I guess. But say. wait. There's more. How can there be more, Tim? For $5 a month, you will not only get a bonus episode, but we will be putting the power in your hands. Every three weeks, you will be given the opportunity the opportunity to vote on what song we discuss. I saw those eyebrows go up. So we'll get to the playlist. We'll throw it on shuffle, and the first four that come out, we will put in a poll, send it out to those of you who pledged, and you'll have the opportunity to vote. And we will discuss the winner every three so that we're not doing it every yes. four. And then, you know, exactly. And you know, I, I believe firmly in the tenets of democracy. And I think this is a good example we are setting on our Patreon. The final tier is $10 a month, which gives you all the benefits from the $5 tier, but also a piece of swag, swag every quarter. You say. We got some cool ideas already mugs, t shirts. Enamel pins. People like enamel mm-hmm. pins these days. They're great. I got an enamel pin for my sober birthday. Hell it was yeah. fantastic. And I said, 
God, I wish this was an as you were a podcast about alkaline trio enamel pin, but I, I don't pledge to the Patreon, so but I wouldn't you, be able to get it. But if you want to be the change you want to see in the world, $10 a month, you get some sweet swag quarterly. You have to, you know, donate for a quarter's worth of time, three months to get that. But I think that's a fair thing. And you get everything else. I think this is a great deal. Uh, Tim, where do I sign? Patreon.com slash as you were pledge whatever you can and feel like pledging. Uh, We are super thankful for everyone out there who's listening, like whatever you choose to do. So honestly, once the idea came up, uh, the idea of doing bonus episodes, once that came out, I got super excited just because... You know, we get to have fun. Mm-hmm. And look, if you're listening to this and you're saying, well, no need to pledge this month. I already got the bonus episode for free. Sure. There's another bonus yep. episode coming within Don't you the worry. next 28 days. So we got the first one of it, David. What are we talking about today? Today, we're going to be talking about the year 1998 and the music released therein. Now, why... Are we talking about the year 1998? Well, as you may be aware, Tim, uh, uh, the band we're talking about, the Alkaline Trio, they released their first album that year and an EP before that, Four Year Lungs Only. So, hold on. So, what you're saying is that uh, since the Alkaline Trio put out a record in 1998, we're probably going to end up talking about the other years that the alkaline trio put records out right well you've put two and two together and you've got five my friend uh so today we're i just wonder if any cool records came out in like the year 2000 i mean what about about 1999 uh we'll touch on some of that because these things don't exist in a vacuum and that's what we're getting to we've been talking about the alkaline trio a lot as the premise of the podcast dictates but there's a lot more that happened. There's a lot more that happened in punk. There's a lot more that happened in hardcore. There's a lot more that happened in the culture and music at large. And I think to place the Alkaline Trio's records in the time they were coming out in, we need to have a better understanding of what was happening, where we were at as a culture, where we were at as a country. And goddamn, I've got opinions on things other than the Alkaline Trio. I don't know if you people out there know that. I don't, but I'm going to try and fake some here today. And not only are we exhaustively talking about the entirety of music in 1998, but we are joined by a third. A third person with a third microphone. Is it Chloe? Using a brand new preamp that I had to buy at Guitar Center last night, patreon.com slash as you were. I'm pretty sure it's Chloe. And let me tell you, when you've got your first special episode and you want to make a splash, you want to get people to say, oh my God, I can't believe this. I got to subscribe to this Patreon. You call in the big guns. Chloe. And when the big guns don't call you back, you call up Patrick Nordyke. That was an intro. <laughs> yeah, I told you. I told you. I wrote it out. I was supposed to vacuum. And then I was like, no, I'm going to write this intro instead. But then I vacuumed anyway. He did. He was vacuuming when I showed up. It was very rude. You them all the time. Pat of uh, notable Chicago bands, mm. Bruges, mm. Angry Gods, mm. Boiling Over, R.I.P. Oh, ooh. Yeah, we went back. Mm-hmm. Ooh. Um, 
welcome. Hey, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you for letting me join. I'd and like now, to thank and, Chloe, and, and too. And Pat, similar to, to David and I, where did you grow up? Arlington Heights? We're yes. on the same metro line. Yeah. <laughs> you, were, no you, were, you were going to record breakers just like me. This is true. We could have crossed paths at any moment without knowing each other, which is probably for the better. Yeah, definitely yeah. for the better. I, I, for one, think it's fantastic that like all of our mutuals moved away, and mm-hmm. now we're just stuck with each other. But hey... I, I wouldn't change it for the world. I but, would. Uh, but briefly, because we have a lot to talk yes, about today. Yes, briefly. Do you remember the first Alkaline Trio record that you heard? Well, this is uh, quite coincidental because it was God Damn It. That's wow. a good one to hear. Oh. Now, how did, how did you hear it? Um, so I had an older brother who was uh, dipping his toes into the pool of punk music, let's say. Uh-huh. Um, and probably around, it was probably around 98 or 99 because it was when I was in middle school. Um, he had two CDs that he had sitting on his desk uh, that kind of, you know, left an impact on me, which was Alkaline Trio's God Damn It and the Get Up Kids' uh, Four Minute Mile. Released in 1997, so being able to talk about that one today. But yeah, so I remember just being intrigued by the artwork of both of them, both being very uh, uh, contrasting images. I uh, put them on my little discman, let it rip, and what it was, was just your, completely uh, how, ma- how many seconds do you have on that anti-skip? You got a 60-second anti-skip? Oh, it was probably or? like four. Oh, yeah. four. Yeah, you know. Damn. Well, we weren't all as posh as you, Tim. Yeah. Okay. Out there yeah, in Crystal look, Lake. Look, look at me, posh as it gets. You guys saw the holes in my t-shirt the other night? Yeah, but, baby. Hey, let's start the year in music, 1998. And let's start with, you know, the reason that, that we started doing this in the first place. The Alkaline Trio released two things this year. What were the two things? Well, we got the Four Year Lungs Only EP... And then, of course, God damn it, the LP. Mm-hmm. Which is the better release of 1998 for the Alkaline Trio? Oh, boy. <sighs> uh, I mean, I, I've got a lot of love for both of them. Um, God damn it is one of the most important records of my life. So as much as I love For Your Lungs Only, as much as I love that song and everything on it, I got to give it to God damn it. I think it's a bigger, more impactful statement. I think it's the type of thing where, you know, For Your Lungs Only kind of set the stage. It got people's attention. And I think, you know, they were already playing the goddammit songs, but I think they really had to come out and make an impact with people paying attention. And to me, I, I think that really shows on that record. I love the vinegar on For Your Lungs Only. I love how weird those songs are. And... I mean, especially the fucking back half of it. Mm-hmm. Cooking Wine and For oh. Your Lungs. And they, they never write songs like that again. No, no. And it's uh, totally the end of this phase of being, like, really scrappy. And what, what was the demo song that we talked about? Uh, uh, week Week? Yeah. Well, I mean, Cooking Wine's a great example of, and the song we talked about in the very first episode, as you were, my friend Peter, is just how short some of those songs were. Like, Cooking Wine's like a minute 40. You know, there's not, but it feels so much bigger than that. You know, they were weird songs, and I always love their real weird, like, we're just going to try and figure this out together and see what happens kind of material. Um, you know, but there's something about the recording of God Damn It, too. The way 
it sounds to me it's so just ramshackle and thrown together yeah it also sounds very urgent too yeah and i think there's that on four year longs only but man like well we will talk about this song specifically soon but uh <laughs> when i hear the start of cringe with them all kind of fucking around before oh, yeah. they play it dude it's incredible well it's and well i really want to jump in on that but we just did technically even though we're recording this before we recorded cringe yes but you know i think there's also something to be said too about feeling that moment of hearing god damn it for the first time hearing them like goofing around and just like latching on to it the way i think pretty much everybody who's ever heard that record does Mm -hmm. yeah and it's also tough like objectively looking at for your lungs only which i honestly like it's one of those two you know if i'm like putting them in sequence but the fact that for your lungs only is within a collection that's where i first heard it i didn't hear the seven inch first i'm just like oh okay these are all like weird songs yeah i mean a lot of even like i lied my face off like i think i think this era of like for your lungs only god damn it i lied my face off that's such a killer it's such a golden period the thing that i think gives the edge to god damn it for me is that because it's a full album, they're allowed to stretch out a little more and do songs like San Francisco or Trouble Breathing, which, like, harken back to more, like, the 97 kind of thing. Yeah. And it allows them to spread out, and I think it bridges into I Lied My Face Off, where there's, like, these four-minute songs of, like, the title track from that, also where they just, like, hold that note for 30 seconds and then hit it again, like, one (laughs) of the funniest things I've ever heard on a record. Uh, So, yeah, I don't know. Just For me, it's all a toss-up, but gun to my head, it's goddamn it. You know, full disclosure, yeah. I haven't listened to the Alkaline Trio aside from the Hot Water Music Split in years. Really? Whoa. Yeah. So where did Whoa. you where did you <laughs> drop off? I mean, because you know, there is is it is it that uh, you kind of made a break and then went back and listened? And you're like, eh, this isn't this isn't hitting me too much anymore. What's I I definitely I I think God Damn It would probably still evoke some feelings in me. And the Hot Water Music Split, for sure, which is my favorite release by both of those bands, definitely, like, I, I still think those songs are timeless, um, which you guys have talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think the last thing I remember listening to was probably Good Morning. I don't know if I ever listened to Crimson, which is great because hearing you guys talk about it with such reverence makes me want to listen to it. Sure. But I just haven't gotten there yet. Oh, uh, I... I loved my Crimson Renaissance because it was well after the fact. I I, I was just like, oh, I love these decisions. I mean, that's that's (laughs) also how I felt about Good Morning. Yeah. You know, that was a record I'd cooled on. But, like, going back to it now, it's it's just very well written. You know, and I think both that and Crimson, though Crimson, as I've said many times, I think is really poorly sequenced and just very strange as a record. There's just a lot of really, really good songs on it. Um yeah, and I'm not too sure why I dropped off. I think Good Morning was a great record, so maybe my taste just grew out of it. I'm not too sure. Uh, you you and I are the same age, and I think we were we, we were entering late high school during that time, and mm. I think that like I think there's something to be said about like the junior year shift that I think a lot of people go through where the early, you know, the like 
end of eighth grade like freshman year stuff that you like really really like and latch yeah. on to and like go from there there's almost like there's either a pivot or there's something that like you know you just go like oh actually what i really really like about pop punk is the hardcore aspect yeah of it. Sure. and what i like about hardcore yeah. is this type of hardcore mm-hmm. that was that was the pivot i made too yeah yeah and not 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 that everybody goes in like to those specific genres but it's something that's just a little bit deeper for me yeah. it was just like it was like i i'm really really obsessed with like early goth and like you know the sure. smiths and stuff like that well i think yeah i mean i was younger than both of you at the time of good morning and like i was with alkaline trio through high school but at the same time like i remember good morning coming out and i was also reading like american hardcore yeah you uh, know? Sure. so for me Alkaline Trio was the band that even when I pivoted away from pop punk and those things, they were the one that was still in rotation. Okay. Like they were the one that somehow endured despite me getting more into hardcore, more into metal, more into whatever. They were the one that I would still go back to. Uh, And that didn't really change until more of the modern era. Yeah, for sure. And I think that's, uh, that's, that's also been well documented. (laughs) Yes. You know, one of the things that we, uh, wanted to do in here is like, you know, obviously we want to talk about everything that happened and a really good jumping off point for us for this particular episode is talking about your goth phase. It's talking (laughs) about my goth phase talking about, God, I tell you what you listen to the, the second half of faith by the cure and like things get weird. Mm hmm. Uh, but David, I don't know if you all know this. David's a David's a writer. He's a, uh, I would argue that I am at best a wordsmith. So tell me, tell us, uh, tell us about what you've been doing at, since the beginning of 2018 uh, on on your 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 site, your 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 people, your publication. Uh-huh. Well, it's not my site, but I've been doing a column over at Noisy. Vice's music site throughout 2018 called The Shape of Punk, where I'm revisiting the records that came out in 1998, talking about them, talking about what those bands brought into those records, what their influences were, and what they gave to the genre at large. So obviously I'm going to write about Goddammit in October. That is the anniversary month, and it feels like that is the appropriate time to do that. But really, 98 was just a crazy year for punk. There's a lot of bands uh, releasing their first record, a lot of bands starting to find their voices on second and third albums, and a lot of bands releasing a great record and then breaking up almost immediately. Uh, So it's just, there's a lot of fodder there. So if you want to read any of those, um, you can go over to Noisy. I think there's a landing page for the whole thing, and you can read them all and, you know, make sure I still get paid sometimes. But we're also going to talk about those records today because they're kind of important to what we're doing here. Okay, so what would you what would you like to start with? I mean, what do you want to start with? We could just go from the top. All right, go from the top. Avail over the James. I'm a big Avail guy. Uh, don't think I'm telling any tales out of school here. But another one, the three album run starting with Dixie, 4 a.m. Friday, and ending with Over the James. I think is just so fucking great. I think Avail was such an important band, especially as a live entity at that time, especially as a Southern band that was willing to show that and address the issues that they were having in Richmond, uh, culturally, racially, um, all of those things, and reframing it in this really fun, 
you know, just uproarious kind of way that I think was a, a real important building block to a lot of melodic hardcore. Uh, I think the early material is great, but it's very scrappy and very messy. Uh, and that's what makes it interesting. But this is the one that's like cleaned up, it's put together, and somehow it comes out on J-Tree. Yeah, J Tree. Let's talk about J Tree yeah, well, 1998. Yeah. We'll, yes. we'll get there. But Pat, are you an Avail guy? Actually, no. No, that's I. Avail is <laughs> uh, one of those bands where um, I think I always knew of like one person in my like close group of friends that like rode very hard for Avail. Mm -hmm. Never did anything for me. Same. I think and, that's really I, common though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I also do. However, I do like Tim's, Tim Barry's solo stuff. Yes. I borrowed a Tim Barry record for you, from you oh. after I saw it was dude. It was Tim Barry. The Gaslight Anthem and the Bouncing Souls at Reggie's in like 2008. And I oh, caught the yeah. second half of Tim Barry's set, and I was like, "Holy shit!" Yeah, I, of all the people that have that have done that uh, transition into folk, I think Tim's. I think Tim, shit Tim's is the best at it by far. He's I, such an eccentric, eccentric frontman for yes. sure. And you I can't think deny he that. still has that in him. Like Avail was such a force. Like if you watch live videos of them. It's it's just like nothing else. It doesn't make a lot of sense. They just look like fucking mechanics that wandered up on stage. And then there's Bobo, who's like not wearing a shirt and has that beard and covered in tattoos, and is just a cheerleader. And he's like their hype man, right? Yeah, he's I mean, like Flavor Flav of Vale. He was the Flavor Flav, and and much like uh, Ben Carr, the Boston. Yeah, I was gonna say the Boston. Yeah, he was also the band's manager. Uh huh. Um, but Avail, there's there's a trailer for an Avail documentary that has never come out. The trailer was uploaded to YouTube in like 2006 when Avail was still active at the time. Yeah. And it cuts to all these people in bands talking about how like Avail taught us to be how to be a band. And I really think that's a lot of what their lineage is, is like how to tour, how to like really treat everyone with respect, how to do this in a very DIY way. Like in 2006, maybe seven, whatever their last full US was, like they had a camper that they went around in. And I remember a friend telling me the story of seeing Avail and talking to Tim and Tim being like, yeah, this is the tour where we pay for our health insurance. Like they treated their band in a very serious way where like they would tour and like, this is the one where we pay for everyone's health insurance for the right. year. You know, they were just road dogs and they fully fucking gave it up and like for what they were doing. And what's most interesting to me is how they're able to cross kind of boundary lines. They had a record come out on Jade Tree, which was like not really in their lane. They had records prior to that on Lookout, which didn't make a ton of sense either. But also, like they were playing ABC No Rio, and they were they released a benefit VHS purely for that. They did so much for charity. They did so much that we're seeing now. Uh, what people are doing in in terms of like using their music to really lift everyone. I think that's what Avail did. I think their records are great, but I don't think, compared to what they were as a live entity, like it, it's just you can't compare the two. See, now I'm not an Avail guy either, and the entry point that I was always given was 4 a.m., and mm -hmm. I would always just listen to it and be like, you yeah. know, this is just not clicking yes. totally for agree. me. I listened to this for the first time. Your article does a really good job of putting them in that context and i was just listening to it and i was like yo fucking everything is on here and yeah. these songs are so good yeah i think this is the slept on record of the first three i think people often discount it but i think the hooks on this thing are better than anything else they did 
I think top to bottom, it's really tight. I think Dixie and 4AM are great. But again, there there's a little bit of them figuring it out, you know? And you li- you listen, too, to, like, the... Um, I, I guess in the, the years that have followed, when bands like Lucero come along and they really inject, like, uh, Americana country music and, like, a punk ethos yes. into it, and it's m- much more accessible than Avail, and, like, I think Hot Water Music, like does a similar thing too where they're pulling from a veil and they're like becoming a lot more of a just an easier band to gravitate towards the fact that a veil was doing something that like just the idea that they're doing something with country and punk music in 1998 nobody's fucking yeah touching that's very that. true yeah yeah i mean i think that's really true and a big part of what resonated for me is it was the one of the first bands i heard so like i grew up in a trailer you know, yeah. I'm from a state that like gets shit on a lot and it's pretty fucked up and has like meth epidemics. And I was living, you know, basically in Gary, which had all these like, you know, it was it was a fucked up time. And then hearing Tim Barry write these songs where he's indicting the place he's from, but also loving it was one of the most important things for me in realizing that you, it doesn't have to be either or. And yeah. you can really have a love and appreciation from your upbringing but you can, you know, <laughs> scream third per capita about where you land. In the I feel like statistics. I feel like some some of the best uh, uh, fucking art has come out of people who hate the place they're from and love the place they're from. Oh, absolutely, totally. fucking absolutely. absolutely. It's just it's a it's a great thing to be able to latch onto. I, I will say one thing interesting thing about Avail for me is that they seem to cross so many different boundaries within the world of punk. Like you oh, had yeah. the kid that was like really into Fat Records, loved Avail. You had the kid that was like really into uh, Asian Mander, like Alkaline Trio, mm-hmm. loved Avail. You had the kids that were into Earth Crisis, real <laughs> yes. hard, <laughs> and they loved Avail. And, and I don't know, I, I do think that is extremely intriguing when a band can cross um, that many boundaries and can you know impact so many different people from so many different genres. And kind of be genreless too within yeah. the umbrella of punk because I never really consider them like a hardcore band. No, I think they are, but they're not. I yeah, think they're a punk right. band, but they're not. And and that's that's what's really interesting to me is being able to skirt that line. And the thing about Avail that is most interesting to me, you know, I have an Avail tattoo, so like I throw up the flag. But I have a couple other friends who do too, and we always joke about like when you just see someone, you just it's like, yep, we got this, and like. You know, that is the bonding mechanism. And we can talk for two hours about how much we love a veil. And it doesn't matter if we have anything else in common. It's just such a bond. And like when I wrote this, the amount of emails and things I got hit up from people who I never would have thought were into punk or hardcore were like, I saw a veil in 1997 and it changed my life. Fucking you know, awesome. or like uh, Tom. Brahan, I forget, I don't know how to pronounce his last name, who's like a senior editor at Stereo Gum. Like, he was from Richmond. He's like, I wrote that, and he is such an avail dude. He's like, anything avail, I am all in on. You know, like, there are these people who you don't often expect who that is the band that, like, is canon to them. And that's what's really fascinating, because they cross kind of everything. Well, I feel like, you know, a lot of people can probably relate to that just thinking about Alkaline Trio. You know someone that likes Alkaline Trio. There's a fucking mm-hmm. form of connection there. It's tears below that. Another J Tree release, 1998, Kid Dynamite's debut LP, self-titled. Dan Yemen's uh, band that comes right after Lifetime, 
my favorite thing about listening to self-titled by kid dynamite is how it starts probably the first half of it sounds so much like a lifetime record Mm -hmm. but you're also just like watching it really just grow into like oh yeah yes a whole different you know thing it's a it's so goddamn. Yeah, it's, yes. it's very clear that Dan Yemen wants to write hardcore music. Yeah, no, yeah, mm-hmm. because like, I just love how he writes like the catchiest mosh parts, fucking ever. Like, it's, yes. mm-hmm. it's so just sugary. Well, I mean, it's I forget the name of the song. I think it's the one with the numbers in it on uh-huh. the Kid Dynamite record, like that. Like that's a lifetime riff. Yo, totally. You know? Yeah, but the band around him is able to frame it in such a different way you know yeah both musically and of course chef chuck's vocals well yeah yeah I mean, his and vocals it, like are... the the difference between jason and ari is i think like super important to yes. that just because his delivery is just so fucking strong and raspy and like really just on top of the mix and everything in lifetime is just like pardon the pun kind of in the background a little bit nothing is like full-on like really like prominent in the mix well, and, I, and, and and with Ari you can barely understand what he's saying dude it sounds like he's like a dog with I peanut s- butter on the roof I of his mouth I still <laughs> don't know because like lifetime lyrics are written out like so incompletely that yes. I'm just like is he just like repeating the second half of that phrase that he just because it a sounds bit more a little bit different yeah. I, hmm. I mean I I have always approached lifetime lyrics the same way I have converge lyrics where it's like yeah, it doesn't really matter. Just take the phrases you can hear and go from there. Yo, just kind of shout. If you look at Lifetime lyrics, they're fucking poetic. They're I mean, they're so great. Good. Uh, but the one thing I like about Jason's vocals a lot, it's Jason, right? Yeah. Uh, he is so ferocious. Mm-hmm. Like, he can do, like, that raspy Ari thing, like, on songs like Burkworm or yeah, the yeah, K, yeah. what have you, with the numbers. Um, but then, you know, he does a song like News at 11, and it's just, like, yes. pure pure ferocity like well just, yeah that song news ooh. at 11 when he gets into that really deep yeah and break part that's wild and the, and the cool thing about this record to me is that so one band that people have asked me to write about for this column more than any other one is grade but grade did not release a record in 1998 <laughs> uh, they released under the radar in 99 separate the magnets came out in 97 Grade was really the band that started pushing that idea of like we're gonna do the the good cop bad cop singy screamy hardcore poppy kind of thing yeah first, but Jason is the one who can do that and not be corny better than almost anybody. Oh, absolutely! Like, like I like Separate the Magnets and Under the Radar is okay, but it's it, it sounds pretty cheesy. Yeah, you know, like it's a little over the top. It's a little you know a little too saccharine. Jason can flip between those modes like nobody else. Mm-hmm. And, and that's one of the things revisiting this record. It's aged very, very well for what they were doing. Oh, absolutely. It, has. it hasn't lost like an ounce of that ferocity. Yeah. This was one of the m- most fun ones to go back to and writing about it and just sitting, listening to it and reading the lyrics and being like, wow, like they were really, really onto something and really ahead of their time in a lot of ways. Yeah. And, they- and like, I feel like the people that are influenced by Kid Dynamite only take parts of Kid Dynamite. Nobody like really sounds like Kid Dynamite. Yeah, yeah. No, not at all. Forward. Not at all. Because they're so fucking tight. And they only existed for such a short span of time, Dude, too. Dude, yes. fucking Jersey's Best Dancer came out in 1997. Yeah. And in 1998, he's got a new band and a 
fucking full length for it. Yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy how quick that all happened, and it does feel like a logical evolution out of Lifetime without sounding exactly like yeah. Lifetime. And I think that's what's crucial, and I think that's what makes discussing Dan's band so fa- so fun, is because it's hard for me to be like, do I like Lifetime more? Do I like Kid Dynamite more? Do I like Paint It Black more? Because all of them have records that I think are fucking incredible. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. <laughs> Hey, Chloe. Hey. We got, uh, so, so for, uh, for all of you, since this is a little bit of a different feel, a different vibe, and a little insight into the fact that the studio room, not that big. No. Also, there's no air conditioning unit. Very hot. There. So, we're in the living room right now. We got an AC going. We also got, uh, Vincent, the pit bull upstairs, who has a real hard time keeping... Uh, his bone on the couch with him. So what you heard was Vincent dropping the bone, Chloe reacting because she can only hear like four things at this point. Yes. <laughs> Most of time, them is food well, entering yo, her bone. One time I was watching fucking Independence Day in here and it got fucking loud because I love listening to movies. I love watching movies with my speakers up really loud and there was a big explosion and then I hear banging on the fucking floor and... I saw my neighbor like a week later and I was like, oh, dude, I'm really sorry about like the about the sound levels the other night. And he's like, I don't know what you're talking about. And then we figured out that it was Vincent dropping the bone on the floor. And that's I was like, beautiful. Oh, that's a Vincent. good. That's the way to coexist with neighbors. Oh, yeah. I was actually I, thinking like, man, it would be horrible to be Tim's neighbor. <laughs> yeah. The I mean, smell. So I, I dog sat for Tim a couple months back. Yeah. First night I'm here, I'm in the kitchen. And I'm making dinner, and I'm, like, holding a giant knife, chopping up food. And there's a knock at the back door. Open it up. It's a cop. And I'm what? just holding a knife, like, greeting this cop. And he's like, there's a lost kid out front. Is he yours? And I was like, uh, no. And he's like, can you go upstairs? And, and, like, he was like, can you go upstairs and ask the neighbors if it's maybe theirs? And, like, I had to be like. Yeah, sure. Like, acting like I'm living here because I'm just holding a knife. Chloe's barking. Uh It looks like I just broke in. (laughs) Oh, boy. And I go up the front stairs, and I'm, like, going to knock on your neighbor's door, but I turn the corner, and they just have a giant scythe out front. And I came back down. I was like, no, they don't have a cable. (laughs) (laughs) Very very nice homies upstairs. Scythe and all. Um, This isn't a J-Tree record, but I think of all all the records that are in this list that didn't come out on Jade Tree, this is the one that would make the most fucking sense. Braids, Framing Canvas. Yes. Um, this is the record where I really think Braid figured out what they wanted to be. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, they were a Which great... Which is not a band anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, that, but also, like, they were a band where I like uh, Age of Octane pretty well. I think it's... Rec- I-, I think there's a real beauty in the records that were recorded and people just didn't know how the fuck to capture these sounds like that. The first promise ring LP where it's just like, I don't know. We know how to record hardcore. Like right. this, yeah, yeah, forever yeah. and counting about how our music, like this is, uh, these are tones, I guess. Yeah. Um, this one is so well put together. So well constructed, really well written. And yeah, I mean, it sounds like a band that's just kind of like knows they're starting to run out of gas. So they just take every chance they can. Um, and it and, really worked out. Yeah, it worked out great for them. And also, Polyvinyl was not a huge label at the time. And I really do think that's what diminished this band's impact for a while. It's 
it's wild to me, like the life that this record has led after it was released, because it's something that I think it's not nearly as sexy as like cap and jazz. No, but you listen to the bands that came around in the late two thousands and moving on into like some of the bands like Foxing are still like, sure. you know, existing as modern rock bands, but people are taken way more from frame and canvas than they are from cap and jazz. Oh yeah, absolutely. Totally. totally. I mean, it, I pointed out like motion city soundtrack, like stole a drum beat from this record. And yeah. I would say like basically added keyboards over top of what, Framing Canvas was. Yeah. You know, I think they were a strange, like, sideways influence to a lot of those bands that were kind of tracing that pop emo circle in the early to mid 2000s. Uh, I don't really think they get a lot of credit for it even now. I think Braid still is kind of seen as kind of a minor thing. Um, it's so wild. It's bizarre. Isn't it? Yeah. yeah, it's absolutely bizarre. Is it just because, like, they broke up and then got back together and then broke up and then got back together is it like if if braid didn't reunite until like 2012 well well i i think they were just always out ahead of everyone with doing that shit yeah and i i do think their sound was just a little off the nose i remember i remember when we like my friends and i discovered braid and discovered framing canvas specifically being like oh man Frankie Welfare Boys is like a, an amazing track. I don't get the rest of it though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it I takes th- a while to click. I think Braid takes longer to click than most bands, and it's one of those things where when I first heard them, I did not like them very much. Yeah, absolutely. It's like I like New Nathan Detroit's, and then uh-huh. it just kind of kept being like, I kept going back to it, and like slowly but surely, it's like, all right, now I like the first three songs, now I like the first six songs, now I like it all, yes. and then really digging into the mo- movie music stuff and hearing like Niagara and Strawberry. Yeah, and so and much yeah. of that Puddle. shit. I mean, it was like coming out as singles, but it's, yeah. it's well, and I would say so they were easy to a singles to. band up until yes. this point. Yes, yes. yes, totally. My, I have a friend who's older than me, and Braid was like his favorite band in the '90s, and he was like, "That was the thing is they were putting out so much." That like they were kind of the collector's completest band. Like you had to track down these comps, you go see them, and they were always playing new stuff. It was kind of like Jawbreaker in a certain sense, um, of just like always putting out new material in these weird different ways. Going to shows and Braid's not playing like the songs you expect them to play, huh. and then it finally kind of congeals here, you know. And yeah, I I think it's it's the fact that you know at the time they were kind of in their own lane this was post cap and jazz yeah this is pre get up kids you know when they're really hitting it hard like them taking get up kids out on like some of their first tours you know and then exploding by the time everyone starts paying attention to this kind of music well the get up kids exploding by yeah, the time because yeah. yeah. there's the story of they go on tour in europe together yes and it's braid taking out the get up kids and by the end it's the get up kids are headlining yeah yeah you know, and, and Braves have kind of always been that band, and they're they're all people who I think get a lot of joy out of actually making the music. You know, and and they're all in the interactions I've had with them. Like Bob's the type of dude where like I played an acoustic show with him in someone's living room, and he was just drinking wine and having fun and playing these songs. And like I think they enjoy playing and writing music, and I don't know if they care about upholding the mythology. Yeah. And I think ultimately that's to their detriment, but like they reunited in 2004 again, like 
I think before this had really taken root, especially in the punk scene. And then they reunited, you know, in 2010, 2011, before a lot of those other bands had. You know, so they've always just been a hair off on their timing. Yeah, and I, I the, I had Bob on for for better yet, and the impression that I got for him was that he never has to knock on wood. Um, the, he's he's a compulsive, creative being. Mm-hmm. He's just one of those people that's driven by finding things by making things and by movement. And I yes. think when that is your disposition, like that's your creative energy, you're not stopping to, you know, you're not stopping yourself from like going out and playing shows and like continuing to be accessible. And when you're continually accessible, nobody has time to miss you. Exactly. Yeah, yeah very exactly. true. Especially because he drops this and then goes right into Hey Mercedes. Right. Yeah. And then, like, hey, Mercedes and Braid almost overlap during that first yeah. reunion. And, like, he just writes a lot of music. And I think that's sick. And when I've seen them play live, Braid, like, they're still very good. Like, they're all very good musicians. They all seem genuinely into it. And it's fun. And I think by not... I think they don't treat it with the level of, like, hushed reverence. Like, that it's this untouchable thing of, like, an American football or a cap and jazz. And I think that's maybe why I didn't catch on. And also, I just don't think they were as big as, like, you know, Promise Ring was a much bigger band in their day. Right. You know? Get Up Kids were a much bigger band. And I just don't know if it permeated the same way to the the kind of average music listener to make reunion tours and reunion records and that whole thing as big of a deal. Yeah. So that's kind of how I view that. Um. Tell us about self-titled Seisha. Uh, is this your lane? Hard pass. Hard pass? <laughs> so Seisha was a band that like I definitely didn't get into. Uh, though I liked a lot of the Screamo stuff, they were not like the one for me in the way they were for a lot of people. Uh, what I, I was really into the like pre-Screamo, the, the proto-Screamo material <laughs> of, like, heroin and the Gravity sure, Records sure. material and Ebullition and, like, that kind of, like, spazzier, hardcore yes. kind of shit. Uh, Seisha I grew to appreciate because I liked... They're a band that, in their place and time, I find very fascinating. Okay. You know, I think they're one of those bands where I don't put on the Seisha record as much as I put on, like, the City of Caterpillar LP or whatever, but I find them really interesting if only because it's like they were just a hardcore band that was sending such a like harsh rejoinder to a lot of the New York hardcore shit I did not like. You know, I like the idea of them kind of drawing the line between like there's the like tough guys, CBGB, A7 stuff. We are the ABC No Rio, like combustible, you know, like jazz inspired art kids. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, their story has lent them a lot of mythology. And I think, honestly, I like Hot Cross better, but the band that comes after. But I think the Seisha record was really foundational and really lay, really spread that idea of what Screamo is going to be, how it could be rooted in hardcore and how you could really like move outside of it. Why do you not like it? Man, the vocals are so bad. Yeah, someone the gave... Vo- oh. some, yeah. Someone gave me over AOL Instant Messenger when I was in uh, college sent me 
this record and I lost respect for him <laughs> after listening to it for like five minutes and and I saw that you did this article and I say this with all the love in my mm-hmm. heart I was like this motherfucker is just flexing because he wants everybody to know that he knows everything he wants the about secret. everything yes. mm. even the bullshit and I listened to it while I read your article and I was like yo I still hate this for the same reasons but I also love everything except the vocals I fucking love the way sure. the guitars sound how like quiet it gets how fucking visceral it is well i think musically is why i appreciate them and i think the the things that splinter off of them specifically off minor who i think are the better of the the post seisha bands because the guitar player in seisha was great and i think the the stuff he's doing on this record really opened up you know a lot of guitar players to be more ambitious with their riffing to get outside of a three chord structure um and i think you know that was really impactful i think i think it was important to see a band that was ebbing towards you know you can get out of just doing the straight ahead a b a b c b kind of parts you know in a minute long time um the vocals are always going to be the sticking point for people um and i would not say i like love billy's vocals on this but i I do appreciate, you know, I've always appreciated bad singers. I love Cap and Jazz. I love the Dead Kennedys. My whole line was always like, if you can sing well, I don't believe you. And yeah, I like a vocalist who's awful at what they do. I, I, I appreciate that. I appreciate that for sure. Except it, Tim's a fucking great singer. Like, yeah, yeah. He's a great singer, but he's a bad singer. And I think that it, needs it, to be it, this, like Neil Young, and I think yeah. is, the, is the like classic example. But, but it's why I loved him is because I can fully believe him. Yo, you know, it's, yeah. it's what he said when I interviewed him is like, sometimes reaching for the thing and missing is better than hitting oh, it. Oh, I definitely And that's that. how I feel about Sixers. Yeah. Well, sure. I guess my question is, why do 95% of Screamo bands have the worst recordings? I love the way this is recorded. Really? Yeah. Oh my God. So, I think so it's like a trademark of the genre. Awesome. Like you have to be uh, it's not a good. screamo band. It's not objectively band. good. But, this, this, here's oh. the other thing. Is I like, I, in this instance, I like a bad sounding guitar more than I would like a good sounding guitar See, I think here. that's the thing. Is I think it. I think you need that to make it work for the style. I think there are bands that have come out of that that have done it better. Like Circle Takes a Square is a good example of, of kind of building up to something with it. Mm-hmm. But... You know, I would ask the same question of like, why does every youth attack record sound that way? Oh, absolutely. You know, so like, and I think there's a weird kind of strange overlap between like when emo and power violence met, and that's kind of where this starts to come yeah, into play. Yeah. You see that with Orchid. Uh, I I am a, a defender of screamo to a fault, but I will say like, do I think this is the best band in the genre? No, but do I think this record was the most important one at that time? I I, I think kind of unquestionably. I think it's I I think it definitely makes its case for being here. You're only doing ten records for the year, right? So I'm gonna do 10 or twelve. Twelve. Uh-huh. Well, I think I'm gonna do eleven. You only sent me ten. Well, I haven't. There's a few that I have not decided what I'm gonna hit because there's uh-huh. so much. Yeah. Like I mean, there's the ones that need to be done, mm-hmm. like Big Willie style. Yeah, yeah. And part of the reason I'm only doing eleven in 1998 is because there's gonna be one in. 1999 that gets included uh-huh. so uh 
We'll kind of like how the Titanic soundtrack is the top-selling record of 1998, even though it came out in November of 1997. It's just like how Rolling Stone named London Calling the best record of the 80s when it came out in December of 1979. Whoa. Um, <laughs> anyhow, uh, yeah, so I'm going to touch on 11. There's like 10 definites. There's one that's I'm trying to figure out because there's so many others I could This list sell. goes sure, up to 11. Sure, Exactly. Um, I went through a Christopher Guest hole last week. Just watched them all. They're fantastic, fantastic amazing. movies. Best in show. Yeah, the part where he dude. Just goes I think out Waiting for Guthman's the best one. Ooh, Spinal Tap yeah. is separate because that's a yeah. that's a different director. Yeah. It's but a different world. Yeah. Waiting for Guthman. Holy it's shit! Great. It's so great. goddamn good. Anyway, I'm the Lone Station Defender. Come at me. Let me just also say I I I, I don't hate Screamo. There are a few diamonds in the rough. Who who are your bands? Yeah, Fakoto. Oh great! I like great. Yeah, Dakota. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. I, my thing is, I think Envy is really peerless. Mm-hmm. They're they're the band that like I always say like, this is what Screamo could be at its its absolute peak. Um, but I wouldn't call Envy a Screamo band. But they've they are they are the proto Death Heaven. They are blending the Screamo elements <laughs> with post rock. Yeah. What know? genre are you? I'm proto Death Heaven. <laughs> yeah. But en- Envy, especially that early shit. That's Screamo. <laughs> the early two thousands and people are like, what's Death Heaven? Give oh, it you'll time. Find out. <laughs> Give it time. They're all crescendos to nowhere. Um, anyway, here's something that we can all fucking get in on: Dillinger Four's Midwestern songs of the Americas. It's a big one. I didn't realize this was their first like full length. Yep. Yeah. Yep. A band that takes forever to do anything. Yeah. They did a hell of a thing here. Yeah. This uh, is. Oh, it's. Of all the ones that you have on here, this is this is my favorite of them. This is the one, and I said this on Twitter, this is the one that was hardest for me to not get personal with. Yeah. I try to avoid first person in these mm-hmm. uh, pieces, but I remember so viscerally hearing this record for the first time. I remember putting it on, and that whole sample intro of OKFMDOA, OK, and it comes in, that Paul Mew guitar and Eric's vocals, and the first chorus hits, and I was like, this is the best thing I've ever fucking heard in my life. Yeah. Damn. And I remember sitting there, listening to it, reading the lyrics, and by the end of Great Midwestern Going Out of Business Sale, the last song, I just cried. And this record means so much to me. In, this, in a similar sense to The Avail, about like coming from a certain place, feeling a certain way, you know, I remember being in high school and talking with my friends, not about what college we were going to go to, but what mill we hoped we would get hired at and work in for the rest of our lives that's some very real politics some dark stuff this class this idea of being proud of being low class this idea of you're going to struggle and it is going to be okay and you are going to find joy and you have meaning and you have worth this record it on on the right day if it catches me i'm still going to cry to it when I was writing this piece, I was sitting in my apartment. I listened through it on headphones. Just finished uh, the last song. I'm like kind of choked up. And my upstairs neighbor knocked on my door, and I was just like, and I you're like holding a myself, <laughs> holding the knife. He's got a size your kid. Uh, but yeah, it's just one of those records where like, yeah, it, it means so much to me. I honestly think that uh, more songs about girlfriends and bubblegum was their best release. But this record is just absolutely perfect to me. Yeah, I, I don't think this is my favorite of theirs, but it, it definitely has like a place in my heart for sure. And mm-hmm. it's funny because like when I first heard this, it did not click for me right away. Yo, because as like fucking poppy and as catchy as it is, 
it's these are not like very a b a b there's a lot of like weird chords in there all these songs have like bridges which kind of like detour you from like what would be super like just beautiful two and a half minute pop song they always throw things in here that make it a little bit more complicated a little bit more thought out and that's that's the thing about dillinger four that i think is so fucking beautiful is that they are a band that is so smart and their politics are so fucking heartfelt and they are also the goofiest and like most self-effacing band Mm -hmm. that has come out of minneapolis since the replacements yeah yeah and that's what that's something that that i really really appreciate is that they kind of carry on this legacy of like you can be you can be literally everything yes. at once. You can totally. be the most serious, visceral thing in the world, and you can also be goofy. You can name your song silly things, and you can throw yeah samples in the middle that just like you know just well, I, lighten I like, it all up. I love that, and I love that they would you know be overt about like yeah, Eric loves Kiss, and we love Boston, and we like Motorhead, and like we like all this like really like deep obscure punk shit but we like this stuff too. And we'll make fun of the bad brains on our live record. And like <laughs> there, there are no sacred cows for them. No. Also like it's totally fascinating how they have been a band for so long and released only a handful of records. Yes. Every single one, just about flawless mm-hmm. and never really deviating never from been, their sound. Can you think of a, of a band that's been like doing it for this long that you haven't been like, Guys, can we like wrap it up here? Can yeah. you justify yeah. yourselves? They're the Absolutely. only one. I, I've said for years, like sometimes bands just need to end. And I love that this one maybe never will. Like yeah. they're the only one where I go see them. It's still fun. It's still great. They can play whatever. And I have a great time because they're doing it on their own terms. If they're playing, you know, it's it has the same allure of a reunion show. Because it's like, well, it's been six years. Yeah. I should probably go to this. But my favorite thing about them so whenever they get brought up, everyone has a di- favorite Dillinger 4 record is different from everyone else's. This is very true. What is your favorite, Pat? Situation is comedy. It's my least favorite. I think it's the worst. Ooh. Uh, my favorite is Civil War, which I know well, is like yeah, Civil War. Civil War is amazing. Civil War is great. It, I get a lot of flack for that, but like when Civil War came out, I like, you know... I probably saw them three or four times, like yeah. within yep. that yep. year, and I think those songs wrote about it. They're fantastic. For, I wrote about it for my college newspaper. It was the first like published review that I'd ever done, yeah. and so it was just like that record's super special to me. I don't know if I've told this story before on this podcast, but the first time I saw Dillinger Four was at the old Bottom Lounge. Uh-huh. They, uh huh. They. The Lawrence Arms were playing a show with a secret guest. And the rumor in our high school was that the secret guest was the Alkaline Trio and that it was their last show. So we went. I was not really into the Lawrence Arms, um, but we went to see like what we heard was going to be the last Alkaline oh, Trio really? show. Oh, man. And I'd never heard Dillinger Ford before in my life and what year was this this was 2002 or three sure and like i remember my friend's mom like took us there like it was we couldn't we couldn't go uh without chaperones we like got dropped off and got picked up 
but I remember standing at the back and like all of my friends were disappointed that you know it wasn't the Alkaline Trio and then I was just kind of standing there watching and I was in the back and by the fucking end of that set I was like as close as I could possibly be listening to this fucking fat guy talk about some 41 and talking about <laughs> like whatever the fuck he wanted to for five minutes before playing another song that just like I couldn't fucking wrap my head around. It was so good. Yeah, and every single live show, anytime you ever see Dillinger 4, they bring that same energy every single time. Like, Patty is kinetic every single time that you see them. Like, do you remember the time that we saw him at Reggie's? Yeah. And Dude, I, I remember, like, making notes in my phone, like, about his banter. Yeah. And he, he was like, this song is about the smoke break, which they're trying to take that away from you now. And I don't care if you need to go out there with a fucking pretzel rod. You go out and you have smoke with the people that you work with because that's where you fucking learn about being a human being. And I was just like, oh, my God. And, like, dude, think about the fact – think about how – think about, like, how many of, you know – how many of the fucking, like – old men that we've had to like deal with in our lives looking fucking stupid when they talk patty is fucking he is he is the same and he's also like just not fallen Mm -hmm. from i think you know i don't want to say put on the pedestal that he is but i think he's an important figure in this scene and he's been fucking smart the entire time. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think Eric's a great example of that too, if only because like his stuff always being more behind the scenes of like running the triple rock, using that as a place to like allow bands to play like, especially local bands, like some of their first shows, the fact him and his wife have adopted a lot of children from other countries. Um, they don't get the credit, I think with some of the more like, progressive punk people but i think they have more than earned it behind the scenes and i think they are the type of band who doesn't care if anyone gives them what they deserve they're just gonna do their thing yeah well Um, i mean we'll we'll get into this a little bit uh later when we talk about like some of the overtly political things that came from punk in 1998 uh these are the best politics yes totally i do want to ask you though why is situation is your favorite I think Noble Stabbings is one of the greatest it's opening great. tracks ever. I'm with that. And when I say it's their worst, I mean it's a B plus. So, <laughs> so yeah, like yeah, that's yeah. the scale. That's where we're at. I, I, and I think Noble, I think Situation is Comedy was the first record that like did click for me from theirs. Sure. So, sure. Which caused me to go back and like re-listen to Midwestern to be like, I get it. It all yeah. works. Yeah, no, totally. So it's got a special place in my heart. And it's got some of their best songs on it, too. Like, I think I, there's no record of theirs that I would talk shit on. I, yeah. just, I just draw that line because there's, like, a couple songs on it that I'm like, oh, these are just fine. Sure. And if that's the worst record, in my opinion, you're doing pretty good. Oh, yeah. So now we're into now we're into the part where if you're with us, you're getting some – you're getting the sneak peek because yes. these are all these are all records that have not – uh, been uh, your writings have not been published yet. Yes. So you want to start with Ink and Dagger? Ink and Dagger, the fine art of original sin. The uh, lights just went out in the building. Yes. I know nothing about this band, about this record. I'm sure that there's got to be at least one other person out there like me. So I would. Please. I would venture to guess most people would feel that way. 
I, I would imagine that of all the ones I'm writing, this is going to be the one where most people are like, I don't know what the fuck this is. Yeah. Right. And that's cool. I get it. Um, so let me, let me pontificate about fucking Ink and Dagger. They're a band who on their face, I, sounds like they would be dismissed as a gimmick, uh, almost in full. It's like, Hey, we're a hardcore band, but we're vampires and we wear makeup and we dress in all black and we spit up blood and all our songs are about vampirism. But that's, a little dismissive because what I think they really gave to the genre at large was, was allowing people to get a little more theatrical. Uh, one of the things I wrote about and hopefully we'll say in the piece is that in punk's early days, that was a central foundation to the genre. When you look at the sex pistols, the Ramones, the misfits, everyone was doing something theatrical. They were four brothers from Queens. They had stage names. They dressed up like ghouls. And those became building blocks for everything. And then in the, in the 80s, doing large to hardcore, the genre just becomes very earnest. Yeah, It's about authenticity. It's about being real. It's about representing this true, authentic self. And you can't really have as much fun with it anymore. So Ink and Dagger, positioning them as a rejoinder to all that, as a response to bands like Earth Crisis, to bands like Strife, to bands like whatever... To, to be this kind of antagonistic troll while really committing fully to a premise, I think is super fascinating. And I think their music is often overlooked because of how theatrical they were. Well, I think also they had a mythology built around them that was maybe a little more exciting than the music. Yeah. And I think to most people. Yeah. I mean, they're one of those bands that like they're a music writer's wet dream because they are a band that has all this narrative they break up shortly after the final hour of original sin. Eric Wareheim was their first bass player and Sean McCabe, their singer who was this online presence was, you know, throwing yogurt at earth crisis and vomiting on Christmas trees on shows dies when he's 27. You know, he chokes on his own vomit in a hotel room in Indiana and that's it. Their second record comes out after the band's already over and Sean is dead. So, there is just more than a lot of these records. Uh, there's more to say about what was surrounding them than what is the material. Uh, but I think Fine Art of Original Sin, and I've held this opinion for years, is that you know Shape of Punk to Come gets all the credit, which is why we named the columnist, and it's why it's going to be the last record I write about. Um, because it's the one whose lineage, I think, distorts the most with the passage of time. Um but this one was doing similar things, and I would argue more out there things than Shape of Punk to Come. Yo, this is very out there. Yes. And listening know. to it with absolutely no, you know, concept, yeah. I was like, what the fuck is going on here? Yeah. But as we're going, I'm like, yo, this is the Shape of Punk to Come, but, like, kind of doper. That's and how like, I feel. way more, like... The, the chances that are taken on this. It's fucking bold. I'm needing to revisit this. It's yeah. a it's a record that like in the first song, you know, it opens with kind of these like whispered backwards played vocals. The song comes in and I think, you know, while a lot of credit is given to Sean McCabe for being the vocalist, and I think he does a great job here, uh, Don DeVore, the guitarist, is is really what makes this music work for me because, you know, he's he's charting this line that ebbs towards the more uh, experimental, spazzy, angular type of hardcore, pulling a lot from like, honestly, second tier Discord bands like Circus Lupus 
and, and shit like that. And you see a lot of that here and the the open space they leave. This is not in a crushing, all-consuming hardcore record. There's a lot of open space. There's a really strong rhythm section behind it. But the fact that, you know, as they're playing, the song starts to, like, warp around them. They don't play any differently, but the production makes it all kind of become this weird LSD acid flashback. Then there's the moments where they do, like, almost what is a record scratch where the song, like, resets a few seconds and then comes back forward. And then by the very end, doing full, like, I thought I got a bad download. I was was like, because I had to fucking soul seek this shit because it's not on Spotify. It's on YouTube. It's on YouTube? It's on Spotify. I didn't didn't see it. Um, Well, the ampersand slash and debate is what I think I was just I think I was just stoked about. Yeah, Yeah. so that's the thing. So they're one of those that does get lost. Let me ask you this question: Would Thursday be a band without Eakin Dagger? No, I mean it's why Jeff sang for them in the reunion thing. I think I think Thursday they're the band that comes up in this column, and they're the band that comes up in the Sasha column. Yeah, Yeah. because they're the one that I think really would popularize what these bands did, not in a shitty way. Like I've got I've got no hate for Thursday. Um, well, yeah, Thursday did did it and made it really fucking like easy to cohesive. Yeah, it was and very accessible. They wrote good songs at the core. Yeah. yeah, but I think I think Jeff's vocals owe a lot to Billy and a lot to Sean because Sean is doing some weird shit. Like in the song where he's singing about where the lyrics are about him sitting in a graveyard with Sid Vicious talking about how rock and roll needs to die, and then spending the middle half of the song just laughing. Like, there's some wild shit here. <laughs> and I definitely understand why people don't like it or could listen to it and be like, this is dumb. Or, like, it's more it's more important than it is good. I think it's pretty good. Do you think it's uh, stood the test of time? Do you think it's timeless? No. But I think it doesn't need to be. Okay. I think it's such a response to what is happening in hardcore then and, and allows people like Davey Havoc to go full goth. Sure allows you know you know they toured in 97 with botch and and Ink and dagger had this crazy like homemade light show and then botch starts doing that you know and and that becomes the famous hallmark of that band's as a live entity you know i think it needs to exist in its moment i think the second record is probably better as a record i think the drive this seven inch wooden stake through my philadelphia heart ep is probably the pinnacle of them making music i think that might be the one thing i'm familiar with by them yeah too. um but this is the one where i think it, it really it, it it makes a point and it serves a purpose in the way that any that like an age of quarrel does it doesn't get the same reverence or the talked about in the same way but it is a fucking response and it is fucking directed and and that's why i think it will remain important if not timeless does matt's cuba like this band no idea well, he is into vampires. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, that's why I asked. I'm not, mm. not like yeah. in your personal interactions with Matt Skiba, has he told you that he really likes Ink and Dagger? Uh, um, I'll ask so him next let me, time. Let me let's get a, let's get a little insider here. Is this something that when you're when you're talking to to Dan, is he like, I don't what the fuck is that? Like, I don't want that's not doing anything for your views that's not doing well, anything for me nobody's like oh my god this is the fucking ink and dagger article that i've been waiting for well we definitely talk about how and, and this is the the universal truth for what it is i do and what makes my life kind of hard in terms of uh making money please support the patreon um there is an inherent ceiling on punk and hardcore yeah there just is so dedicating an entire column to that you know, there's going to be some stuff that's not going to be the hits, right? But there's stuff that 
needs to be talked about. Seisha is not going to drive traffic in that way, but it needs to be talked about. But in Ink and Dagger could, because they have that mythos, they have reverence within the community for sure. And yeah, within the community, though. Like, but, al- but also, like, the, the, everything is about how you, you frame it. For sure. Can you sell it with a headline? I don't know if I'll be able to f- sell Ink and Dagger with a headline, but I think people who have an interest in it or maybe don't know what it is who click on it out of curiosity are going to maybe listen to this record more than maybe some of the other ones. Yo, of the things that I that I listened to in preparation, this is one that's like, I want to listen to this like four or five more times because I feel like I'm going to gain something each time and I listen to and it. And it's a fun headphones record. Yeah. You know, you listen Ooh. to it and you get some of the weirdness. Like, obviously, it's still a hardcore record. But it's bold. There's a you density know? there. There's something to be said. It, it's it's the most, aside from the content or the composition, that I think stands to be gained. And there's not a lot of the other records I could say that about from that time period. Hmm. Um, Jets Brazil. Orange rhyming dictionary. Another jade tree. Another fucking jade tree Jade tree's record. on fire this year. Yes. This is the first release from Blake's new venture after jawbreaker um it's a record that i have kind of i wouldn't say i've soured on over time but when i go back to jets to brazil i don't go back to this record unless i'm really feeling it you go back to perfecting loneliness yeah i think perfecting loneliness is my favorite blake record i actually was never really and kind of still haven't been too huge into jawbreaker sure but Jess Brazil clicked for me in a way that Jawbreaker didn't. I've heard that a lot from people. Yeah. I think that's that's something that, especially depending on when you get them, is what matters for me. Like, my first Jets record was Perfecting Loneliness, and I did not like it. Um, I don't think Jess Brazil has a perfect record. I think all of them are good, and all of them are important. And the reason I think this record is important along with another J-Tree release, which we will talk about, uh, which is How Memory Works mm. by Joan of Arc. These are the records that made punks embrace indie rock. Yeah. These are the records that allowed people to understand there was an expanse beyond these genres that you could pull from a U2 or an REM or something outside of this and still be part of this world. Uh, and I think, to me... Orange Rhyming Dictionary has my favorite Jets to Brazil songs. It's not my favorite Jets to Brazil record. Uh, What's your favorite? Perfecting Loneliness. Yes. Um, as a piece. Yeah. Uh, but I think this record, hearing it for the first time, hearing songs like Chinatown or I Type for Miles or Sea Anemone, Sweet Avenue, this was so different. And I think it needed to be. I think it needed to give people an idea that, yes, we can be punk, especially giving not just Blake's pedigree, having the drummer from Texas is the reason. Having these people, uh, the one of the original guitarists was in Lifetime, I believe, who did not record on this record, but you oh, know for real? was there. Pete, uh, must have been Pete if it wasn't. Well, it had certainly to, wasn't. Had Pete. to have been Pete. Yeah, uh-huh. I'm fairly certain the original guitarist. Dude, when was I from saw him. Lifetime reunite, I was fucking right in front of Pete, and Pete was so fucking stoked. Yeah, and he was so stoked right at me, and I was so stoked back. I'm just, I'll always have a fucking soft spot for that guy. Cool. 
Fuck yeah. I th- you. Who the fuck invited this guy? You did anyway. Speaking yeah. of just just the Brazil, here's, but I think this opened people's minds. Here's the thing about this record that I I think that I found more and more is it starts off and it has to be like sort of similar to Jawbreaker in the beginning. Yeah. But once you get through those first four or five tracks, it gets weird. that's when it starts to get like it's a, different. It's, and it's a, a back bit half more, record. Yeah. 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 Definitely. And I really really like is. the back half. Like. The things that are, you know, kind of jawbreakery on here, I'm just not really vibing with because it feels like it's. It, there's some of the, some of the lyrics on here like rub me the fucking wrong way because yeah. it feels very like like Chuck Palahniuk sort of shit. It feels very like, like what? Like, just like what's the the song where he's like for your safety we've installed this camera like just oh, these yeah. like social commentary songs and like sort of like I mean that's technology is getting weird I, kind of thing. I I'm do not, think like revisiting this that's the one thing that kind of like uh, stood out to me was that his lyrics maybe weren't the best at this point. It's I like, think it took. It's like some dipping time into like it's dipping into like like the future is now. Yeah, they're watching But to be you. fair, that was happening in hardcore across the board. Like, listen to fucking his hero is gone. That entire thing is like the internet will kill us all. <laughs> um, or like nausea, like but oh technologic kill. Punk. Yeah, but I'm saying like <laughs> I'm just, this is not this is not divorced from that. You know yeah, that yeah, that absolutely. was that this is fucking. Like if we're gonna say that, let's talk about OK Computer. Um, you know, like that. That's well, not because that came out in 1997. And it sucks. And you know, but there's like uh, there's a fear of the future happening. I think writ large. Listen, if I don't want, think if it's... you want to make people mad on this podcast, don't nobody's nobody's gonna be mad about you saying Radiohead sucks. You yeah, gotta, you gotta fine. tell Besides them everyone they like sucks. everyone likes you. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But. uh but like He's what definitely the likable. But what but what jumps out to me is like like I type for Miles is one of my favorite songs. Yeah, like that's so clearly just song. a song written yeah, about yeah. the movie Barden Fink. Uh-huh. You know, like that's what it's about. And like I like Blake willing to slowly open himself up and I would say that his embrace of the future is now shit is no less cheesy than hey, have you guys read Kerouac? Yo, that's real. Yeah. But the you, what, the the seeds that are that are sown in this record is the, the reason that I like perfecting loneliness mm-hmm. so much is be it ends up becoming like all right you guys have been with me for a long way and things are weird now and yes. I, he's confessional to such an extent that it's like this is where it starts to just veer in like a like a much more I don't know you're just like spiritually fucking connected to the guy yeah yeah Yeah. i just i just think this is again this this falls into important maybe not the best camp because it's it's three to four people from punk and hardcore bands deciding that we need to do something outside of this we feel like we've hit the creative end point does anyone talk about four corner i'm sorry no i I think that's the one that Four most Corner Nine should have been an EP. Yeah, the first four tracks it's, on that are fucking great. I, yeah. and I love some of his like good. Billy Joel piano shit on it. Yeah, but <laughs> I'm being real here. <laughs> but like, dude, it's, it's the least just, favorite. He's from not very everyone. good at piano at that point, you know. Yeah. And, and he gets really good at piano. Yes. I think. Yes. 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 But yes. I mean, I think like you're having the time of my life is a great pop song. Yeah. I think that one is the one most people kind of like. Eh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think I think it's a great song record. It's not a great record yeah. for sure. Um, I was actually kind of surprised to see this one on your list at the drive-ins. 
in Casino Out. It's my favorite at the drive-in record. Really? Ooh, yeah. That's a hot take. That is a hot take. But, but I think that's not a hot take within the diehard fans of at the drive-in. I think they tend to like this record more than they like... Uh, relationship. Yeah, relationship. I think both of those records are great, but I think what's important about this record, again, is kind of what it does. It's really when they figure out what the fuck they want to be. Yes. Everything before that is like, here's like a screeching weasel song, and here's yeah. just like shit that does not come together. Here it comes together... And, you know, part of that is the lore of them just basically recording it live, trying to be like, we know we're a great live band that has yet to be captured and expressed. Here it is. But I also think this is the moment where people start to be like, where they become a force in the scene. Them putting this out, touring, opening for the Get Up Kids and blowing them off the stage every night them really bringing in some of the things that had yet to to dip into the emo world of like just straight up like we are hispanic people we are going to bring that in we are going to bring in those language tropes we are going to write you know impressionistic lyrics that maybe don't mean Mm -hmm. anything or maybe mean everything to you yeah and we're going to be a band that is just going to similar to what jets to brazil does in terms of kind of pushing people in indie this is pushing them to like let's get a little weird with it yeah spacey yeah very dynamic for sure yeah and i think this record you know i I, it doesn't have the the bombast and it doesn't sound as good as relationship with command but i think songwriting wise there's some really great stuff on this yeah they definitely i think they figure out what they're doing songwriting wise on this record yes i think it's also interesting to look at at the drive-in as a band that's within punk because Mm -hmm. i think for a lot of people like if you were introduced to at the drive-in it was on mtv2 yes and if it wasn't that it was probably through the mars volta so it's it's all coming from this like sort of they're on their own island and they're also talking about some like weird shit it's kind of it's it's interesting to look at them with in the punk scene within the emo scene well especially the emo scene like them touring with knapsack get up kids those type of bands like that's where they were put you know that was the world they were in which is very kind of strange to think about now and there's no question that they would blow any of those bands out of the water too yeah um do you think they would in 2018 because i didn't hear a good thing about that Hey, man, you don't have Jim Ward with them. That's the thing, too, is I think Jim Ward's contributions to this record, like his song Hourglass, is fucking great. That's one of my favorite songs. Same. I love that song. I think Transatlantic Foe, the last song on the record, is the best at the driving song. The last two songs on this record, I I actually, it's funny that I have like a parallel uh, with this in Relationship of Command where it's just like, oh, my God, until like the seventh eighth track and then i dip a little bit and then the last two on both Fuck those it. records oh, yeah. bring me yeah, so hard back. Yes. so but hard this shit the last two songs on this record are like as human as anything that they ever do yeah, yeah i think that and i i forget the name of the song i think it's napoleon solo it's whatever one is Napole- kind of, yeah i think i know what you're talking about yeah like there's just a lot of humanity in this there is what i will say is i saw you know when they when they reunited and it was fun. It was fine. They're trying a little hard to recapture the, like, we were, we were wild, yeah, yada, yada, yada. But I think these songs as songs may have aged better than some of the Relationship Command material. Yeah, definitely. I would agree with that for sure. So, like, I don't know. This is a tough one to write about because 
no one explicitly was referencing this record, but I think it pushed people to be like, all right, we've got to like, mm, we got to get up there a little bit. Yeah. yeah. You know? And I think you see that manifest in a lot of different ways. This is, this is what establishes them to go on to do a relationship and everything afterwards. Yeah. yeah. Sure. And I think Most if definitely. this record didn't exist, they wouldn't have gotten signed to grand Royal. They would not have made a relationship of command without it. And I think it's, it's most important for them getting it to there. But I think as I think it's often fascinating to look at the record before the record. Yeah. And I think that's kind of what this is going to be an exploration of when I tackle it. Um, so now we're at the record, the record, uh, the smell of farts to come Mm -hmm. by the refused. Um, so I feel like this record has been espoused upon to almost death. Yes. So I'm interested in how you are going to look to tackle a record that has been mythologized over and over and over again. Like what's, what's the, uh, by not talking about it, Uh huh. by talking about how this is a stand in, for everything that happened in 1998, that this is a record that gets it is basically it's the albatross around everyone's neck. Uh-huh. But 1998 was a year of you know people being adventurous creatively, of people taking risks, of people really trying to carve out that punk hardcore. All these things does not need to be what we have built it to be over the past 20 years. Mm. That this is everyone shooting their shot. It's young kids finding new ways to, you know, refract their influences and bring in new things. And this is the record that hinges all of it on. You know, this is the record where everyone's like, you know, if you gave someone one record to explain what happened in 1998, this would be it. And also, if they never reunited, we'd still be talking about it with the reverence that we had. The yes, past that's my next exactly. question is, yeah. is what does the shape of punk to come mean in 2018 versus what it meant in 2013. It Absolutely means way nothing. less now. Is it because they showed uh, a human side where, you know, they got back together and it, it wasn't amazing? I, I saw them on the reunions and they were a good live. I, I heard that they were good live, but then they but made a record. The, that record is atrocious. It's fucking racing video game music. As yeah. I said in my review. <laughs> uh-huh. But it's because... Part of what I want to address, too, is the way that punk and hardcore, though so much of it is about being human and so much of it about being is about being authentic, is honestly bullshit. We like the mythology. We yeah. like the thing oh, we yeah. can't have. We are doing it. We're killing Jawbreaker now. We're going to kill all these things because they keep coming back. It's our own hubris that destroys it. As a record, is it as good as everyone makes it out to be? Maybe. Not yeah. for me personally, but I think there's great, great stuff on it. I think it represents the fact that a band that started literally just being, you know, a with songs like fucking Pump the Brakes, yeah. you know, like you can grow into something else. And I think it allowed people to see that. I think the mythology is more interesting than the band as a whole. But I think that, you know, it was necessary. And I think that sometimes what is necessary and what is important does not hold up. Is it timeless? I don't know. But I think, yeah, like we get to the fact that Crazy Town is covering new noise. We get to Anthrax <laughs> covering new noise. We get to this being usurped by almost everything and sucked up yeah. by everyone else who didn't care about what was happening 
in the scene and it's easy to point fingers at it but it's not like they knew they were gonna that was gonna happen i think i think we are very easy as a culture to to make jokes about something that got taken out of context but we're the ones who put it there that's that's really interesting i think that like the mythology sounding or surrounding this record you know i i don't know a person on the planet that didn't didn't listen to it for the first time because they heard the story yeah. about it. Um, at least anybody that's, you know, our age, but I've, I've never listened to this record more than twice in one week. I've always put it on sure. and thought like, this is fucking dope. And listening to it again this week, it still sounds fucking amazing. Oh, yeah. It sounds great. Oh, yes. It's some of the best captured. Literally, like, every <laughs> instrument that's recorded on this record sounds ferocious. Oh, the absolutely. Fucking, the snare sound on this? The oh, drumming yeah. oh, in general. Is great. The drumming just across the board. That whole record is... And that, ooh. like, you know, that <laughs> I think that you... I'm stealing your quote from the kitchen, but, like, the drumming is what probably is the thing that's... Yeah, every that's drummer knows knows that one beat i yes. can't remember the name of the song but it's the later half of the record yeah every hardcore drummer opens up like you know they're kind of warm up before the show they're playing that refused drum beat yep yep it's also interesting to know too that like the band hated each other at this time yes like and you can vehemently hated each other and i think it's a record that's built around that yeah you can feel it i think there's you know like they're calling their shot with songs like Refused or Fucking Dead. Yes. Like, that's part of what adds to it. And you that? can feel that tension in the music. You can feel it in, in just the songwriting in general, everything that surrounds it. Yeah. And it's like, do I need to hear new noise ever again? Probably not. But like, I would love I to hear I still it. fucking get like stoked for that song. But like, Once I it he- starts and that build... It takes so long to get well, I could there. still I could it, probably still jive with you noise. That's yeah. cool. But I was going to say, like, Refuse Party Program. Or well, Deadly Rhythm. F- yeah, those Ooh. are fucking tracks. But this is also the record where then all of a sudden every hardcore band is like, we have pedal boards. Right. And lots of them. Yeah. yeah. I, I feel like it's, it's one of those things that's like, it's good to talk about because it does influence a lot of, like, different small things i would say like the way the way he sings and like the the drumming but nobody like tries to make this record again well the the point i want to make is that three of the records we've talked about that i think are the most maybe off kilter is if we took Sasha at the drive-in and this i would put ink and dagger in there too yeah that's when you start getting blood brothers you start yeah absolutely san diego scene i think what the blood brothers gave is so fucking important and i think those records still hold up yeah um though they are you know hard listens but like yeah i think i think they're those records really gave to cumulatively gave more to people making great records than say a dillinger four did yeah but i would say that you know if you're looking at pound for pound the most influential records on this list it's not the shape of punk to come, and I don't think it's. I don't think shape to punk to come is in the top half of that list. No, it, it's braid and it's Dillinger Four. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, I think this is the one. Much like at, much like relationship of command, it became shorthand for a thing. You know, sure. It's it's those mid two thousand scene core kind of bands saying those names or those records as influences, wanting cred. Or wanting to be like, yeah. this is when we get ambitious. Yeah, it, it's it's a stand-in for an emotion or for a feeling, and that's what I think the shape of c- punk to come 
represents as a whole is it's not necessarily about people sounding like it it's people trying to be it yeah yeah i vibe with that I, I i've always been like this is so so great I don't need to listen to it for another six months to one yep. year. Yeah, I, oh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. I pull it out once every year or two, and it feels great, and yeah. that's – I've met my quota. Yeah. yeah. Um, so let's get let's get into – this sounds insane to say let's get into the meat of things after fucking what we've just been doing for an hour and a half. This is – hey, people are going to pay. We're going to give them – what they deserve. Oh, Tim, I, I think you forget. Not, I am not. Tim, I think you forget that David's the star of the show. Here. Any yes. way, shape, or form, trying to complain. I'm just saying we talked about a lot. <laughs> yeah. And now we're going to get a little bit more detail-oriented. Yes. So a record label that came up several times just now is J-Tree. They put out the Avail uh-huh. record. They put out the Kid Dynamite record. <laughs> they put out the Jets to Brazil record. Also that uh-huh. year... Cap and Jazz Anthology, which mm. I'm not going to try and say. An Alphabet Apolitology. Ooh, that's a hot one. Yep. You know, I sat down and, like, in preparation, like, looked at it a few times and just said it because I've actually never tried to really say it. And then I got it, but I only got it because I tried it, like, six times. Yeah. And on the sixth time, it sounded good, and I knew I wasn't going to be able to do that on the first time here. It's, a, it's, a, it's befitting in that it's very hard to say. For a band that was very obtuse. The, the, the biggest point I want to make about this is like, this is really, we mentioned Cap and Jazz and talking about Braid and some of the other emo adjacent stuff. This is when people discovered them. No one was listening to it in 95 when it came out on Man With Gun Records, the fucking forever long album title. Yeah. Um, you didn't mo- say that one. I just refer to it as like the, what is it? The Schmapp and Schmaz. The uh, Red Rider like mobile that's on the front cover. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The wagon. The wagon. There we go. Um, but yeah, like they were not a band people liked back in the day. I have stories from older friends of like, yeah, they would play shows and everyone hated it. But '98 is where somehow that clicks and opens up. One thing it's interesting because we talked about how Braid was kind of always like you know a step to the left of what was going on within like that particular scene. Like Cap and Jazz was really that band that was like very far away yeah, yeah. They, they they moved the end of the spectrum <laughs> but it's yeah. also interesting yeah. how forcefully pushed it how like braid and cap and jazz were so tied together oh, of absolutely. like bob and tim trading lyrics back and forth and like you know the, the sky corvair where bob and tim played together in a band and you know friction playing with cap and jazz you know like i think people often forget that braid was running parallel to cap and jazz's existence they didn't come after the yeah. fact it's, they just weren't as good yeah. So it's funny because I had one of my main influencers when I was in high school was uh, a friend of mine from New Jersey. Um, and Bruce. I remember, yeah, uh, my friends Bruce and Ari and Tony. Um, so I remember getting into to Death Cab and, and like this is 2003. And I was, uh-huh. like, I was like, yo, are you into this band Death Cab for Cutie? And he just like went off. <laughs> on how how this strain of emo and he specifically called out cap and jazz was like ruinous Ooh, and yeah. he hated it so much and i was like word well i'm never gonna have to check out this cap and jazz band and Ooh. then it wasn't until like the bands that were ripping off cap and jazz and when i first heard him i was like i don't know what cap and jazz sounds like but this sounds like cap and jazz i think and then i bought this <laughs> I bought when they reissued it, 
uh, bought it and went home and just, you know, I'm 22 years old and I'm hearing those first two tracks for the first time and could not fucking believe yeah. it. Was yeah, happening. and this is another one that took like a long time for me to kind of like really really grab a hold of. It was another one that my brother had the CD of, of this J Tree release when it first came out. And like I remember listening to it and just be like, nah, not for me. But then when it did click later on in probably my early 20s, I was just like, whoa. Yeah. This what is, one is going on here? strangely immediate for me. I, I I think I had heard enough of like the braid and kind of emo stuff that mm-hmm. when I first heard it and heard those like first couple songs that are on that LP, I was like, okay, yeah, this is weird, and I imagine most people are gonna hate it, but I was like super taken with well, it. Well, what I think is is kind of funny is that you can, and this happened to me, was I got really into Braid through like the Hey Mercedes moving sure. backwards. Yeah, and yeah, there, yeah. there is a way to to get super into Braid and have absolutely no idea that like Cap'n Jazz is like running parallel, parallel and within. And also the community it. that Cap'n Jazz spawned. You know, obviously we talked about Braid, but also like all the other Chicago bands, Gage being one of mm-hmm. them too. Yeah. Um, Who are uh, super underrated. Yeah. Oh, know. absolutely. And, and like, would bands like the Ghetto Kids even exist without Cap'n Jazz? Would a lot of bands that would well, that would just come right after or right before 1998 exist? Well, because well I, I would argue, I mean, the fact that the Promise Ring comes directly from Cap'n exactly. Jazz is a big point of that. Yeah. You know, like that was the band that I think really kind of made people think like, oh, we can we can do this kind of weird emo thing, but make it really just pop referential. Yes. Um, and I think that gave so much to it. And then like, Obviously, American football, Joan of Arc, all these things like that web is is iconic for a reason. Well, you know? I think what people um, never really attempt to do, though, is to get as arty as Cap and Jazz was. It's everybody that yeah. comes away from Cap and Jazz finds a way to like take the good type of weirdness, you know, the twinkly yeah. parts of it and the hard parts from it but never try and like venture into that. Like they are such an abstract, strange band. They're a fucking yeah. art band. So when I was, I was listening to an interview with Tim and they were talking about cap and jazz and he was saying how, uh, uh, what's the guitarist name? Victor. Victor. Um, how he was just a classical musician. Yeah. And that's what they're just like, yeah, we want to start this punk band. And he's like, uh, okay. <laughs> yeah. My favorite. Uh, so I saw cap and jazz at riot fest last year. And I've seen Cap'n Jazz a bunch of times on the reunion. It's always been fun. But that was, speaking to your weirdness thing, that was the point. Is because, like, they were kind of a mess. And Tim was in the crowd and he was throwing his tambourine and then asking for it back immediately. And just doing all this, like, <laughs> trolly, really, really funny shit. And when they did the Take On Me cover, he's changing the lyrics to be about how he wrote the song. And I'm, like, having the best <laughs> fucking time I've had at a festival in God knows how long. And I go back into this little area and there's a couple people I know and I'm like, God, like they weren't watching; they were just hearing. Uh-huh. And I was like, "Cap and Jazz is the best festival band." They're like, "This sounds like garbage." I'm like, "You're missing the fucking point." Yeah. And I think that's the thing is they're a band where like I like a lot of the people who, in the quote unquote emo revival, took from them and did cool cohesive shit. But I love the weirdness, and it's also why I love Joan of Arc. Well, here's the thing about Joan of Arc. I have trying to get into Joan of Arc is like fucking homework. Yes. It's so hard. And I listened to how memory works for the first time this week. 
it was the first Joan of Arc record that I've listened to all the way through because I've always just been like, you know what is way easier than getting into Joan of Arc? Not even fucking trying. Eating. I drinking was coffee. Moved. I love that it's record. Fucking unbelievable. Those first three Joan of Arc LPs. Yeah. are some of the best music any of that Dude, circle and it made. was like it was just one of those moments where it just it, it made me feel it made me feel like i was fucking 14 again it made me feel like you know i'm just like walking and like aware of the fact that like this is this is an important first experience that i'm having and i'm just like able to just detail everything as i'm just walking yeah. to the train and listening to this record and just feeling so just moved I yeah know. i mean i know we've said that like eight times in the past three minutes but. but i mean they were a band that i didn't get for years joan of arc and it took this record how memory works was the one that opened the door for me and i was like this is great then i listened to portable model of the one before and that's basically like half this half like almost cap and jazzy songs but then like live in chicago 1999 the gap like these really those are records that to me and these are not 1998 records but like they're records that I think really laid a foundation that bands like Animal Collective and, and more experimental indie rock bands would, you know, hit pay dirt with. And Joan of Arc just got shit on. Yeah. And that was their entire career was just them getting hated and torn apart. And then you listen to a record like How Memory Works and you're like, how? How? Yo, I saw it. So I saw Joan of Arc at that American football show. You were there. Yeah. And they, I don't know if you remember their set very much, but it was like. It was essentially one song. Yes. It was a half an hour. It was like fucking like weird, indecipherable noise for 10 minutes, five minutes of just like sheer beauty, quiet beauty, <sighs> and then 15 minutes of like worse shit than they were doing yeah. <laughs> for the first my, 10 minutes. My, I was there with my dad and we're watching it and he gets up because he's like, what the fuck is this? He goes and gets a beer, takes his time coming back and by the time he gets back, the pretty part has started and finished and they are just like, you know, antagonizing everybody in the crowd even more and when they're finished, he's like, what the fuck? fuck was that and i was like you wouldn't believe what you missed yeah it was it was the most beautiful thing i've heard for five minutes and then they just one of away. my favorite things they did this is my favorite joan of arc stories they played do division years ago which is like one of the first big street festivals in chicago every year it was like in may but it was like unseasonably cold it was like 45 degrees and yeah. kind of rainy joan of arc comes out and they have a song called my summer long high wipeout or something it's on a seven inch it's a two and a half minute song it's great but live at the end Tim just plays the same chord over and over again and goes like, thank you, sorry. Thank you, sorry. And does it for their full set. (laughs) The rest of the band is standing there, not playing their instruments. And you are watching people standing in 45 degree rain. Yes. React to this. Yes. Similarly, they did a show at the opening of an art gallery where they played just the intro of Under Pressure. The (laughs) Just high hat in that. For a half an hour. So, like, it's the type of shit where, like, you get really annoyed, and then you love it, and then you hate it again, and then you love it. And I love that that's what they do, is that they are a band that... Uh, the thing I like about them is that I don't love every record. Yeah. But the ones I do love, when they are in the right moment, it's 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 incredible material. And I think How Memory Works 
is the perfect gateway into this band. Yeah, and that's what I got I got really stoked about. It was like, oh, cool. It's I happened upon a really, really accessible record. Yeah, and I think that's the best part about Tim as a musician is he's always challenging his listeners. Yes. Always. Yeah. Whether that's, you know, in an easy way or in a way in which he uses repetition as a device to just, like, pound people into the ground. Like, it's brilliant. <sighs> yeah, and I mean... It's so funny because I've oh, I I wonder if they will ever get their day in the sun of like a, a renaissance of people looking back and being like no this band was actually great probably not probably they're just gonna not. exist forever and keep annoying people yeah but like that's the beauty of it and they're still getting shit on on pitchfork reviews <laughs> yes. which is hysterical <laughs> um, also uh, Pedro the Lion oh so good glorious record um, you know he's he's somebody that I always like kind of. Uh, liked his records, enjoyed them, and then when I started interviewing people, and just the repetition of people being like, "Yeah, David Bazan, yep. David Bazan," and then I go back and like really, really intently get into it, and I'm just like, "Oh my god!" Like the fucking amount yeah. of influence that this guy has. Oh, I, absolutely. Yeah, I I think like for me, growing up as you know within like the catholic christian church yeah but then like all of a sudden being like you know that point where you're aware of like yeah this is isn't my bag uh-huh. um is it around the same time that i was like really getting into music and then you know you hear about pedro the line you hear he's like this very religious yes uh, uh being and you're just like nah, i don't know about that which is unfortunate so unfortunate because i think that happened <sighs> yeah. to a lot of people it happened to me give him a chance i did not give him a chance because i was so anti-christianity yeah. and organized religion that i was like i he plays fucking, what is it, a Cornerstone? I'm like, no, yeah. I'm not interested. <laughs> Same thing with the Smoking Popes. Once I learned those songs were about Jesus, I was done. Yeah, anyone that plays Cornerstone, hard pass. Yes. <laughs> um, well, fuck, let's let's just, let's do a label. Let's do a label dive. Okay. So what do you want to do? Well, let's, I, let's, feel like, I feel like it's, we should be talking about Asian Man, just based on the fact that they're the ones that are putting sure, out. Sure, sure. Um, the Chinkies. The Chinkies are coming. Mm-hmm. Pushover. Do you know Pushover? Not really. Slow Jerkin. Do you know Slow Jerkin? Yeah. What's that all about? Ska. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, It's so, so, it's so Asian fucking man. funny. This is Asian Man Ska, and they're also putting out the fucking album. Yeah, so Asian Man puts out one good record that year? Is yeah. that Because <laughs> all the rest okay. of that's okay. garbage. So, California. Uh, stop me if, uh, if there's something you want to talk about here. Epitaph. Uh, Agnostic Front. Something's got to give. Agnostic Front? Not a very good band. Hold what on, hold it? on, hold on. The first Victim in Pain and United Blood yes, are two I'm, perfect records. I'm with those. However, you could erase the rest of that band's history. I'm with you. When he starts yeah. singing like fucking Mickey Mouse, crucified. Oh, it's horrible. Like, it's, <laughs> it's terrible. terrible. But yeah. United Blood yeah. and Victim in Pain, everything else, I don't give a shit. Choking yeah. Victim, no gods, no I managers. Hate love I it. Fucking I fucking hate love this it. Band. Yeah. I so it. No, no, this band's complete garbage. <laughs> I think, I think, so this, good. I think this is one of those bands that spawned a specific type of fan that just made me hate that band so much just based off of their fans. Uh, so I hated them for a long time for that reason. But I think this record and Fuck World Trade by Left Rover Crack are like really oh, interesting musically. No, I think no. like the way he blends these ska parts with like really intense like black metal shit in some of it, mm. really wild. I think there's great songs. Mm. And I like his approach, especially as he's he's been softened for me in recent years reading or like listening to podcasts, reading interviews about him where his whole thing is like, I know it's absurd, but like you've got to be this extreme to push the conversation, mm. and I think that's fascinating. Did you also have butt flaps? Yes. Mm. Um, Nausea. 
Rancid, <laughs> Life Won't Wait. I hate Rancid. Not a big... I, really? I've I like never gotten big into it. I like Rancid a lot, and I don't like this record very much, but I think Rancid 2000 is that maybe their good. best. And I think that Outcome the Wolves is like, you know, that's... It goes Green Day, Offspring, and, and yeah. Rancid. Um, but... Life Won't Wake is kind of the attempt to follow that up, and it doesn't click. And no. then they make a street punk record two years later that I think is fucking fantastic. Rance is one of those bands I never got into. The older I've gotten, like when I hear some of those records playing, like in a bar or something, or I hear the songs come up, I'm like, no, these are just good songs. Like, yeah, it's they're not good something songs. that's ever going to like really resonate deep in my chest, but I'm fine with it. Meh. Check this Fat Wreck. Good riddance. Nope. Screeching Weasel. Nope. Swinging Otters. Nope. Mad Caddies. Nope. Lag Wagon. I'm with Do that Lag Wagon one. any of those bands differ in any way? So we covered that. Moving on. <laughs> yeah. The only one I will give anything for is that there's like half a dozen Lag Wagon songs where I'm like, all right, that's okay. That I can believe the, that. Uh, the one on the Tony Hawk soundtrack? That one. Th- this one has, I think it's like May 16th, which is maybe like the best Lag Wagon song. Mm. But none of those bands I really got into ever. Did yeah. they? I, I like Oscar. Was Oscar on Fat Wreck or Epitaph? Epitaph, um, or I think like the Epitaph subsidiary. It's maybe. so wild also, looking at looking at all of the things that are like happening in different spots that are just like new things coming together, and then like Fat Wreck and Epitaph are just like churning out. out. Those are two they labels put that out, like, like fucking hundred records. Those are two labels that like. Because of the comps, I heard a lot of those bands, like yeah, those cheap-ass yeah. like $3 yeah. CD comps, and it would always be like, well, I like Propagandi. I like six of these songs. Yeah, yeah. or like, Descendants are cool, but it was never... But all the rest of the songs sound the same. Yeah, yeah or just... So, yeah, a lot of that stuff my has never Nick been my friend called bag. it junk rock, and he was like two years older than me, and yeah. I thought that, that, that he was also, so cool for... Also, how bland does all this shit sound compared to anything else coming out? <laughs> no, of totally. Year? It's... it's uh, it's pure junk food music. Um, they also put out the Look Forward to Failure EP, the first release by the Ataris. Yep. Uh, I had a soft spot for the Ataris because the dude was from Indiana and I was from Indiana. But, boy, it does not hold up. No. Yeah. You want to talk, talk, uh, talk about male music that doesn't hold up. Like, yeah. What's <laughs> it? It's problematic. Um, yep. So one thing that I found kind of interesting in doing this dive is that both Vagrant and Drive Through Records have essentially nothing noteworthy come out yeah. in nineteen ninety eight. Like Vagrant does a live face to face record. Cool. No motive, who is mm. one of those bands that like I don't think anybody's ever actually listened to. Yeah, they sold exactly three CDs. It was to all of their parents. Yeah. Um <laughs> and Drive Through is a similar story. There's like an Alistair seven inch but in 1999, Vagrant does something to write home about, and Drive Through does Newfound Glory, yeah. RX Bandits, Phoenix TX, which was like a crossover yeah. hit because they had the the song uh, "Everything's My Fault," I think is the yep, name of it. Yep. Had a video with Mark Hoppus, and it was also for uh, an MTV original movie called so, Jailbait. Ooh. Yeah, Jailbait, exactly. Ooh, yep, it premiered at the end of it. I want to note about the Newfound Glory thing is they did put out a release in '98 on like some little like Florida label that was like three songs and then a bunch of live shit. So that band's going. And I think they're an interesting counterpoint to talking about something like kid dynamite. Yeah. Like kid dynamite is like, Oh, you understand how to do pop punk and hardcore. Yes. And then newfound glory is kind of like, these are the people who are just doing pop punk, but 
are say, from Florida. Are from Florida, and like he was in Shia Lud, so I guess they're a hardcore band too. And then that becomes a thing. They're adjacent. Yeah. So yeah. let's uh, let's switch lanes a little bit. Equal Vision Records. Ooh. Put out the follow up to Jersey's Best Dancers by Lifetime, a record called Can't Slow Down by Saves the Day. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, I never was a big Saves the Day guy. I was a huge Saves the Day I guy. I love Through Being Cool. Um, and I think the one after that, Stay What You Are, is pretty good. Yeah, those are good tracks. They're good, good records. This one, it's so Lifetime Worship that yeah. it's kind of nothing This is me. absolutely nothing for me. I really? Yeah. Oh, this is the only one yeah. I go back to at this point. Really? I don't yeah. go back to any of them. Dude, um, see, what happened was you and I, Pat, had a conversation about Stay What You Are. And you were like, dude, Stay What You Are is fucking it does not hold up. No. And I'm like, no, dude, really it's great. It. Are you kidding me? It's got some tracks. But. It's, I, I like, I like a lot of the, I like a couple of songs on the record at this point, but yeah. um, it's, I think kind that I like, cringed when you said that. Yeah. I, <laughs> I think that I respect it more than I like it, even though lyrically I have no respect for it. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yes. Jesus. Um, I mean, that's the big thing about Chris Conley kind of in general, especially on those three kind of canon releases, is like, he's uh he's going a little out there. This is like yeah. cannibal corpse shit for emo kids. Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a trend that is like kind of develops here and then goes forward is problematic male lyrics within the emo genre. Yeah, yeah. And for this sure. is one, Saves the Day is one of those bands. Right, yeah, 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 like throwing lemonade in your face, and it's like, actually, no, that's fucking not cool. But another thing that like that saves the day kind of develops an alkaline trio is probably you know it's these two bands that really they they turn this like darkness and like a lot of self harm into something that a wave of bands comes that that follows with it and just turns it into mall punk and it's like well i think really, really, really objectionable too. you know yeah. like there's there's definitely these people skirt a line you know but and occasionally are on the wrong side of it but some people just had no regard yeah and well just, i feel like taking back sunday just comes and it's like oh my god like this is all like so horrible yeah, yeah. oh absolutely it's how you end up with like or real friends new. and shit i uh i really love cancel it out by saves the day. Hmm. I think it's a. I think it's a record that that holds up. I love the way uh, his vocals are on it because he's he's not like super high pitched yet. He's totally. He's just trying to sound like Ari. Ari yeah. And all of these songs are trying to do the lifetime yeah, thing. Yeah, but wouldn't you rather just listen to lifetime? That's my thing. Yeah. 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 I mean, I definitely listen to Lifetime way more than I listen to this. But if I'm if I gotta listen to a Saves the Day record, it's this one. Well, see, that's the thing, Tim. You don't have to. Well, there is this thing called choice. I, what, what, what's <laughs> basically happened is that over the course of the last like five years, it's just like preened down to such an extent that it's like I really only need to listen to this one and like two songs from the acoustic EP, and then sure. I'm fine. Fair enough. But also, Equal Vision puts out a weird range Yo, of stuff. Yo, it's a fucking yeah. wild year for Equal Vision. Yeah. Converge, When Forever Comes Crashing. Love mm. it. I love that record. Now, Me too. Okay, as, as somebody who's never uh, like actively put on a Converge record AKA before lived in a my very life. very devoid 
sad life. I well, that's not to say that I've never listened to Converge because I've listened to Converge a lot because it seems to be something that people who uh, like to play music and people who like to just fucking talk about how talented the music players are always want to put on Converge when I'm around, hmm. and I'm just like, I don't. I find uh, I find like conversation about somebody's technical ability. To be the least enticing. I've never had that conversation about. Really, I feel like this has happened to me so many fucking times in my life. Yeah, drummers love converge. Drummers love Ben Kohler, and they'll talk about him. But But this release does not feature him. Yeah. Well, and this is also a very fascinating one because Dahlbeck's still in the band or on Bane. You got Stephen Brodsky who's doing Cave In, um, and then you've got Kurt, Jake, and the drummer who everyone forgets. But like. Yeah, I've never talked about them in terms of technical ability. And well, that's why I like good you. at it. But like, to me, they're a band who I like everything. I'm like fully on board. I love petitioning the empty sky for yes. being literally like a hardcore record, but it's fucking emo as hell. Like, and then this one is just so claustrophobic, yeah. so just metallic sounding, and just visceral. It perfectly sets the stage for a lot of records that follow it, and. You know, I think this is the time when everyone... It's when Metalcore starts to become an actual thing, you know? And I think everyone starts raising the bar. That's how we get to We Are the Romans, Till Your Heart Stops, Jane Doe. And I think it's it's a pivotal record that doesn't get talked about enough. No, it really doesn't. It you know? really doesn't. I mean, it's... I, I think some people just kind of write it off as just like a chuggy metalcore record, and it's really not. No. It gets really weird. Especially, in like... And this is like a hallmark of hardcore from this year is that hardcore is very weird. Like yes. You're coming out of the early mid nineties in which you have earth crisis dominating everything and every band wanting to sound like earth crisis. Yeah. And then people taking that heavy sound, pushing it further, like converge here. Um, and then you have like their equal vision label mates like Bane, who's, uh-huh. I mean, I don't really know how to describe Bane. They're hardcore, but they're just—they're their own genre, Banecore. Yeah, um, yeah, totally. It's like youth crew <laughs> refracted through like we like hats. Yes. <laughs> I see. And they hold, like holding those... this moment by Bane comes out this year, and this is the this is the Bane record that I really really enjoy. I know record. it's a collection. Mm, it's a good record. Just, the songs are so weird. Count me out's an amazing song. Ooh. Count me out Bane is a, an amazing song. Bane was yeah. a band that kind of like slipped past me. Yeah, they were not really my uh-huh. thing. But like revisiting and it's like yeah they're they're fucking track. There's a reason this band was yeah. what they were. I honestly I feel like by by give blood they figure out like what Bane the institution is and then they just go from there and I find that shit so uninteresting. But, but they do like, like two records post that in 15 years. Like, do they? Yeah, yeah. The, I think yeah. the no three. Maybe three. But. There, yeah, the note came after Give Blood, and then I, I kind of stopped. I mean, even that. the I first, even the first LP, on, I'm just like, just, I'm just like, can we oh. just talk about Bane the institution and yeah. the. Uh, 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 <laughs> Bane the hoodie. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, you don't you don't actually know what he's referring to. Is that there's a there's a lore of uh, there's a story that um, before I met Pat. Is this what is this is what you're talking about, right? I don't. No, no. I was actually uh, doing the connection of like uh, the it's idea of Bane being a collegiate. Oh yeah, entity. It is a collegiate. Entity. <laughs> oh, but but have you never heard the Bane hoodie about. story? No, you've told me. I go go on. Because though. like there is like I so our connection is like Joey Capel and uh-huh. um and we would like be we would be at house shows together but like I didn't really start hanging out with with Joey until like uh sophomore year and we had a class together and he was like he was like, "Hey, do you have a Bane hoodie?" <laughs> and I was like, 
No, I've I've got a I've got a Bane. I had a Bane T-shirt, but no, I don't have a Bane hoodie. And Nate, they had like some kid like found them on the streets when they were like walking to a party, and he was wearing a Bane hoodie, and he was like this insufferable like drunk kid that wouldn't stop talking to them. He's like, oh, you're in a hardcore. Do you like Bane? And Nate W thinks that that was me and it wasn't me. I had no idea what was going on. And then fucking, so Joey like one day is like, do you have a Bane hoodie? And I'm like, no. And then after that, I felt like I was accepted by Joey <laughs> when he found out that I wasn't the Bane hoodie kid. But Nate W will like to this day tell you. And jo- Joey Seeger came to our house one time uh, to play a show, and he looked just like this kid that Nate hung out with. And I was, you could fucking drove me nuts. And so Joey Seeger walks in, and I was like, I was like, oh, you're fucking here again. And I've never met Joey Seeger before in my life. And he's like, what? That's amazing. I'm like, oh, I thought you were someone else let this be a lesson to never cross him because he'll remember it forever yes yes um but also on equal vision just to point out this is may not be your guys wheelhouse but floor punches yeah, uh, yeah. i can't remember the fast, fast times fast at jersey, jersey shore. shore just so looking at equal vision putting out converge when forever comes crashing bane holding this moment and then floor punch fast times also earth crisis those oh yeah read the yep. killers read the killers those four records of hardcore music Four completely different sounds. Well, it's it's crazy to me. Equal Vision starting so much as like the Krishna label, then like just kind of bringing in everything and having an ear to be like, yeah, we're gonna do all of this, was re- mm. is really wild. And it's now it seems a little weird because Equal Vision so nothing, but like they were they don't do mad. they were anything. Dude, oh, yeah. Equal Vision put out that uh, uh, that Loom record. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Fuck that's a. a good release for them. Yeah. They their press on that was not. I good. mean, even well, by the mid two thousands, it slowly starts to. They probably slowly. don't yeah. have their finger on the pulse anymore. So how do you do? Yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah. Well, it's. I think it happens. I feel like it happens a lot with labels where you'll see you'll see them like pop up and and snag something that's like good and you feel like it's good for that label, and then you just find out that they're not. Yeah, they're not with it. Yeah, Jade Tree. Yeah, yo. Well, uh, that that's a <laughs> that's a different story for a different day. Um, that's yeah. four different stories for. <laughs> Since it got brought up, what's everyone's feelings on Earth Crisis? Dude, I, I it just doesn't. There's there's an aspect of like heavy music where I feel like a lot of the Earth Crisis influenced bands that come out later, they hit heavier because. They weren't from 20 years ago. Totally. So I'm just like, I listen to Earth Christ, and I'm like, this is kind of weak to me. For, for the listeners, Tim has been getting in a, uh, what I call a hardcore renaissance. Yes. Yeah, so it's I've been, been fun. So I've been kind of waiting for him to be like, yo, Earth Crisis. <laughs> it clicked. It hasn't happened. It's going to happen. I hate Earth Crisis. <laughs> I like the song Firestorm and nothing else. Yeah. I, I, I just don't get it, especially as someone who, like, I love hardcore music. Earth Crisis is like my least favorite band. I love making jokes about Earth Crisis, oh, yeah. but yeah, oh, they yeah. were—they've never been my thing. I like the song Firestorm because it's goofy. It's like I a very like funny song. and heavy song, but like one song does not a band make. I did listen to their new metal record a few weeks ago just because out of curiosity. Mm. Woo! Who boy? Uh, boiling over whenever we would play somewhere. Uh, uh, 
that wasn't a big city, like let's say in the middle of nowhere, Iowa, we would always kind of bait the audience by being like, just get the microphone and be like, yo, this next song is an Earth Crisis song. <laughs> and then just go into like a 15, minute, a 15 second song. And yeah. Confuse <laughs> yeah. the hell out of everyone. Um, let's, yeah, let's stay in like this heavy lane. Uh, Hydrahead. Botch. American Neuroso. Caven. Uh, Beyond Hypothermia. Jesuit. Self-titled. Soylent Green. Sewn Mouth Secrets. And adjacent to it, Isis's Mosquito Control comes out this year mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. Yes. To, and to kind of like go from Equal Vision into like more New England music, like let's say Caven, Isis, Converge, because that all that stuff is all related. They were all friends. They were all in the same area. They were roommates in certain cases. Yeah, or, or bandmates. Yeah. Um, There's so much overlap. Yeah, so interesting. Because Kurt's recording so much of that shit like in the basement of the house that they're living in. Yeah, because yes. like... Kurt is starting God City. Like, really, the first record he does there is Until Your Heart Stops, um, the Cave-In record. Uh, Brodsky was in Converge, and he's in Cave-In. Caleb, who was in Cave-In, was roommates with Aaron Turner of ISIS and, like, the other ISIS members. Uh, Blue, Kurt Blue, Brodsky, and a couple other people do Kid Kill a lot. Like, it's just all very, you know, uh, incestuous at that time. Mm-hmm. And everyone would go on to you know make great records or become these bands that still kind of stand as totems of specific you know subgenres absolutely yeah um, it's interesting too how you have like these people that are all like very much intertwined with each other's lives and they produce music that is all completely different granted under the the auspices of heavy music totally but completely different also uh piebald's part of that too piebald's yeah, part yeah, of that pointing out too yeah. and the jesuit one's interesting too because nate was mm-hmm. in that, and then he joined Converge. And also Dillinger Escape Plan member, too. Oh, that's right. Who yeah. also put out a record in 1998. And yeah. I believe in 98, Dillinger, Botch, and Jesuit toured together. Oh. Um, and I think that was Dillinger's first full U.S. Damn. Wow. Let's shift gears completely. Okay. The <sighs> Billboard Top 10 Albums of 1998... Number one, it's already mentioned, Titanic soundtrack. Great. Get this, number mm. two, Celine Dion's Let's Talk About Love. Ooh, they Jesus. love that fucking song so much, don't Ooh. they? You really forget how, like, one, long those things would endure and just how much music could be sold by one person at a, oh, yeah. in a minute. Yo, you know? but there's a 33 and the third about that Celine Dion record. And really? Really? Almost bought it at Myopic, and then it wasn't there the next time that I... But I'm, like, interested to see what, you know, what somebody's got to say about that. Yeah, I mean, it's something I've never listened to, so I'm not going to, like, shit on it, but it's just not something I have any real interest in. I would like to read about it. Yeah. There are plenty of records in bands I don't like that I enjoy reading about. Yeah. And maybe this would be one of them, but I don't really know much She's of got a good behind the music. I will say that. Hmm. She married her oh. manager, who's, like, I knew that. 25 years older than her, and they're, yeah, like, married to yeah, this yeah. day. Yeah. Um, if Canadian he's still too. with us. Uh, Garth Brooks Sevens is the number three. Number four is uh, self-titled Backstreet Boys. Ooh. Number five, come on over, Shania Twain. Love Ooh. it. The Shania Twain record, Celine Dion, and Titanic, both all three of those came out in November of Damn. that year, which is fucking wild That's to wild. consider. Yeah. It's weird that, I mean, they were probably trying to do like a holiday sale 
you know, like people getting that for Christmas and yeah. shit like that. That's yeah. probably a big part and of it. And also CDs were huge. Then. Yes. Yes. The so that, mo- like units you could move. I mean, you remember Titanic when that came out? There were there were uh, people that went to see that movie like seven or eight times. Yep. Like in every elementary school, like guarantee. Mm-hmm. So um, weird. Somebody had like a classmate that's seen Titanic like six times. Uh the first real guitar rock record on this list is Matchbox 20, Yourself or Someone Like You. That's the Matchbox Ooh. 20 record with, yeah, like, yeah, with all the hits. Yeah, 3 a.m. and all that shit. Uh, 3 a.m., the Rob Thomasing hour. <laughs> Number seven, City of Angels soundtrack. Iris, baby. Iris, baby. Google Dolls. I was going to ask you what was on that. Yeah. Huh? I was somewhere yesterday. I was, like, running errands, and I was in a store, and Iris was playing, and I was like, uh-huh. very strange. Yeah. Very Can you name another song off that soundtrack? No, doesn't matter. Cool. Uh, Dizzy Up the Girl came out in October of 98, I believe, oh. which is, I feel like if it came out earlier, probably would have been not at the top of the charts, but close. Yeah. There were a lot that of hits a big on that record. record. They're doing the 20-year anniversary tour. You going? No, but I'm going to hit up, uh, I'm going to hit up Jamie and be like, do you think you could get like a professional ass like email together? To see if I can get Robbie on better yet. Ooh. Hell yeah. That's like doable, right? <laughs> I, with the fact you're going for Robbie, I think makes it doable. Oh, I wouldn't want to talk to Johnny. No, no. Uh, Big I would love to hear that, though. <laughs> yeah. Because, like, it, that'd be so sick. Yeah. And I think Dizzy Up the Girl, like, I listened to it within the past year. Not bad. It's not bad. Um, It's not as good as A Boy Named Goo, which I just found out. Hey, I told this guy. Lou Giordano produced that uh-huh he did copper blue by sugar and he did everything that came every hardcore record that came out of boston from like 82 to 80 really fucking, yeah, yeah like that's ssd wild. that's absolutely wild. fascinating yeah. but you huh. know how copper blue sounds fucking amazing yeah yeah listen to a boy named goo i never said it didn't <laughs> i don't know who big you're willie arguing style. with I just listen to more ssd anyway yeah big willie style number eight savage garden that's self-titled number nine hold on nine. let's go back to big willie style that's a hot that's record. a good record Ooh. i own that record um Ooh. yeah i own that too my uh, my aunt got it for me for christmas yeah or my birthday fantastic yeah. uh spice girl spice world number 10 mm. um let's look at the paz and job uh top 10 this is the village voice critics choice uh top 10 records of 1998 number one record uh, is Lucinda Williams' Car Wheels on a Gravel Road. For anybody out there who has any sort of interest in uh, country music, Americana, songwriting, I, this is, honestly, this is like my favorite record of the second half of the 1990s. Hmm. That's all I got. Uh, yeah, I dabbled in Lucinda Williams before, and I gave this a more thorough listen after Tim mentioned that this was his favorite record in 98 it's good it's not the type of thing i really reach for um i have a very low at this point a very low like americana country tolerance i think uh i was having conversations about this recently with people and i'm not gonna go as hard as i was then but like i i want people i want people to do more with it uh yeah i think this is very well written but swap out the vocals it's it's sounds like wildflowers by tom petty to me so it's it it didn't make as huge of an impact i think it hits a lot harder than wildflowers and i think that she's like she's got a real ability to say 
everything in a very very compact way sure it's just it's it's one of those things i hear and i hear what she's saying but it's so clean and put together i don't really feel it and i guess that's my issue with it is like i can tell it's good and i like it but i it's hard for me to to really like it doesn't stick to my bones at all yeah Yeah, i think i think i'll be revisiting it after your suggestion just because i do love that style of music so yeah that's what i uh number two is lauren hill's miseducation of lauren hill uh this record's fucking sick I like listening to it a lot. I have a playlist at work that just takes out like all of the sample parts, put it on Good. a fucking <laughs> Saturday afternoon. Uh, that was a big record too. That, that was a huge, huge record. I'm surprised it's in the top ten. Yeah, she's playing it at Pitchfork this year. Yeah, yeah. next week if she shows up. Shows up. Uh, number three is is Bob Dylan Live 1966, which is, I think it's weird that they have a a reissue in their list but what this is is um it's a it's a famous concert of dylan's uh where he was touring england in 66 and he was doing an acoustic set and then an electric Mm -hmm. set and this is when you know bob dylan going electric was seen as as he was a, a turncoat and so he does eight songs acoustic you can hear a fucking pin drop and then the second half is uh it's him with like robbie robertson and maybe one other member of like what would become the band but it's the beginning of the band and it is sloppy it's raw and the audience is going back and forth with him Mm -hmm. and you know it's famously at at a certain point uh somebody yells judas and he he says, I don't believe you. He turns to the band and says, play fucking loud. And they play like a Rolling Stone. And he's just yelling it. And that's very, very, brilliant. very, yeah, very brilliant. cool. If you're interested in movie. like, if you're interested in like history like that, or, you know, you have any, anything more than like a passing interest in Bob Dylan, like you should totally check out that record. Co-signed. Cool. Um, Billy Bragg and Wilco mermaid avenue great record it's Mm -hmm. really good i feel like it wouldn't be the the story of it's really cool these are all like woody guthrie lyrics yeah um the wilco tracks are fucking awesome and the billy bragg are kind of hit or miss yeah i think it could have been one disc not two yes i'm with that yeah i mean for sure I only recently got into Wilco. Again, I had a predisposition against it for a long time but i was a huge billy bragg fan and tim's totally right like there, this is a spotty period for him in general. Yes. Um, but he's so great early on. I've now embraced Wilco in yeah. chunks. Yeah, the Wilco tracks uh, on this. But yeah, like, they, it's, it's not, fucking cool. They play all of these tracks. Yeah, yeah. they're and so good. there's not much, like, from, you know, before Yankee Hotel Foxtrot that they, like, keep in, like, regular rotation in their catalog. They'll totally. throw, like, a Summer Teeth song and, like, they'll play Misunderstood. But all of the tracks on here are in regular rotation in their live sets. The story is, like, dope. I don't know if you guys know this, but, Mm -hmm. like, basically, uh, Woody's granddaughter was, like, in charge of this. Mm -hmm. And Bob Dylan really wanted to be the one who did this. And she's like, no, it's, I want Billy Bragg and I want Wilco to do this. And they have no prior relationship. Yeah. So Wilco is Billy's backing band yeah yeah throughout it um so cool uh elliot smith xo i do this is this is just like the fucking heart of elliot smith yeah Yeah. this is this is the best record you think so uh, well no either or is is probably the best but this is just you say either or i say either or 
I say Eeyore. Because <laughs> this puts me to fucking sleep. No, I'm just kidding. I, oh, I like Elliot Smith okay. It was never a big thing for me. Yeah, I feel like... Um, no, you know what? Actually, I think if you've never heard Elliot Smith before in your life, you could put this on and get like really fucking stoked on it. Yeah. What, what I've come to appreciate more as I've gotten older, because I think so much of it was I think people like loving how sad it was and the lyrics and da 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 da. I've really come to appreciate his guitar playing. I think oh, he's, he's really fucking, fucking good. And I, mm-hmm. I've come to I've come around on a lot of the stuff that I was like a little more like whatever about as a result of listening. To it through that lens, so, yeah, yeah. I, I I will make jokes about it, but yeah, like I I'm with it. Yeah, cool. for sure. I mean, you know, people get glamorized for the wrong reasons. Yeah, totally. Yes. Uh, yes. He, he's he's fantastic uh, recording artist. All of his mm-hmm. shit sounds so so good. Uh, out outcast Aquemini. I was kind of surprised to see this on here because I didn't realize that Outcast was, was like that big before Stankonia. It's Some, great. Dude, lost, this record yeah. is fucking incredible. It's so good. It's so good. Outcast is like, they're on their own fucking level. I mean, I think Outcast records, in a way that a lot of rap records from that era don't, have, have aged pretty gracefully. Yeah. Um, and, and that one just, it's not the one that people often point to, but I think that and Stankonia are both awesome. Yeah, dude. And, and I fucking speaker box and love below i don't need, ever need to hear the singles from yeah it's, that a, ever again. it's a little bloated but obviously that was the intention yeah but i like them going that far with totally it. and this is like such a boring time for hip-hop too yeah um pj harvey is this desire are you any are you either it's never hit me yeah. i've tried this is Nothing fucking here. good i'm the same way though i hmm. never really got into it i uh, saw her live last year and even then i was pretty I was like, this is cool. But yeah. I just didn't yeah. She care. makes a lot of interesting decisions. Hmm. I don't know if I, I feel like weird, like saying this because I know that these two are romantically involved, but like the female Nick Cave is like, you know, she makes a lot of fucking yeah. choices. She makes some dark ass music. And I mean, that sounds more of my alley. I only got into Nick Cave real hard over the last couple of years anyway. Yeah. So maybe this is now yeah. the time that opens up for me. But you, you, Nick Cave. No, it's never really uh, peripherally. Yeah. That's how I was. And then I saw him and I was all in. He was so fucking good live that I I went deep. And it made me see a lot more that I was missing. But though, to be fair, like for people who come in through the heavier music, just listen to Grinder Man and Birthday Party. And then it'll open the Grinder Man, the first Grinder Man record's fucking awesome. Even the second one's really good, in my opinion. But yeah, like. Try Grinder Man if you're into like weird. Yo, and then Dig Lazarus Dig is the Bad yes. Seeds record record at that point, and it feels like it's just totally. Grinder Man, but it's really great. Totally, and I even think some of the modern stuff, like I thought the last record was good, and Push the Skyway has some like fucking rippers on it. So yeah. he, he's someone. There's a lot, but it, it became very worthwhile for me. I love the Boatman's Call. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I don't really like i mean not to say that i don't like nothing has hit me nearly as hard as boatman's call but i think that record's amazing fair um air moon safari surprise that nah. uh, not my thing yeah uh beastie boys hello nasty Good. i was gonna yeah yeah, yeah. wow Ooh. i feel like that's a that's a sleeper because there's there's really good yeah. singles on there but this whole thing is fucking awesome yeah, I think, like, yeah. the prime beastie boys right there yeah I feel they came yeah. when they came back like it was I don't know if it was like this for you like in my like elementary school like liking the Beastie Boys was uncool and I was like no this this shit is 
so sick. I, so yeah, I didn't really know anyone who's into the Beastie Boys when I was growing up, which is kind of strange because they were so yeah. big. Yeah. But they're another one that, like, revisiting a lot of the material minus the super early stuff, all pretty fulfilling. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They're definitely very good. Yeah. They're, they make fucking artful shit, and they also make some just bangers. Uh, yeah. Rufus Wainwright, his debut LP. Uh, Nothing. Nothing. I liked it for about half of it and it was cool it's like like i like loudon a lot his dad makes fantastic records like like new york city like (laughs) coffee shop type music and this is kind of like like it would be like loudon but on broadway sure um sounds amazing i don't really need to listen to it for more than 20 minutes yeah have you seen the leonard cohen documentary i'm your man that documentary first is fucking awesome because uh, it's a great portrait of Leonard, but it's also um, interspersed with uh, uh, performances from a tribute concert hmm. and Rufus and his sister perform a few songs together and they're the best performances far and away. Oh, interesting. interesting. Yeah. Um, we've also got like, we've kind of talked earlier about like this being a time of like, beginnings and endings and there's some pretty big beginnings that are happening one you have saddle creek putting Mm -hmm. out uh bright eyes collection of songs from 95 97 and also letting off the happiness the first lp uh cursive the storms Mm. of early summer semantics of song and the faint media that's the beginning of the omaha thing the beginning of dance punk also uh death cat for cuties something about airplanes comes out this year it's really the start of this new wave of indie rock yeah. in a lot of ways. Cause like yeah. all those bands would become so totemic in the next five years, yeah. you know, like the blending that kind of ends up happening. I think with like that and like the Jade tree world, nothing that happens like within those bands, but like the, the bands that come in like, you know, the late aughts are definitely like people that liked bright eyes yes. and death cat for cutie. And yeah. the people who like, braid yes. and fucking cabin you're in the indie camp yeah. or you're in the emo camp well and it's funny because i think the most interesting one of those that crosses that line is cursive yeah like, those yeah. first three records oh, yeah. were fucking emo records but they were uh-huh. positioned as an indie band yeah um and and yeah their their status has always been really fascinating to me as a result well i also think it's very interesting too that like you have like the pillar 90s like indie rock bands are all making their later period records and or breaking up yes and only like a few of them release a record this year um, yeah, it's true. I mean, so it's, it's interesting yeah, to see how, like, it's like the like, last pavement record comes out in '99. Yeah. It's a quiet year for Guided by Voices. Yeah, no Yola Tango. They no, they put out like Ma Earwig, which has like two good tracks. Yeah, I think. Yeah. yeah. Um, Beck's Mutations comes out this year, dude. I, every time I listen to a Beck record, I'm like, this is great. I never have to hear it again. I cannot stand Beck. Yeah. Uh, Neutral Milk Hotels in the airplane Ooh, over the sea. The big one. The big, it's the big record of Ooh. 1998 as far as indie rock goes. I would love to never hear, I would love to not hear this record for uh, another five years to be able to listen to it again. But also, like, I'm part of the reason why I don't hear it because yeah. this, I, I, I love this record so much. It's great, but yeah, I don't need to ever hear it again. It's, it's the shape of punk have come of indie rock. I was supposed to, to say the same thing. Hell yeah, buddy. Wild. Um, Wild, yeah. I. It's a it's a record that gets to leave 
weirdly mythologized and like I saw Neutral Milk Hotel when they came back and it was a bummer because I was surrounded by normal people. I saw Jeff Mangum when he first did that solo run. Yeah. Same thing. It was was so weird. It was just people who I'm, I just, nothing. They don't, they don't like music. No, no. And it's, it's, I mean, it's it's the idea of like I think giving if someone is into subculture shit, there's always going to be these kind of records that are kind of hard to deny, but it feels very weird when you interact with that world. Yeah, you know, like mm-hmm. I've been trying to go to more big shows, just like scratch people off the bucket list of like a Nick Cave. I did Tom Petty. Like I'm gonna go see Pearl Jam, and it's just like when I'm there, it's always like, oh, there are thirty thousand people who. Have, don't know any of the fucking records yeah. we talked about yeah. prior to this. Yeah. Oh yeah. Civilians enjoy these. Yes. Bands. But I think that this is uh, this is a record that like I have a lot of uh, I have a lot of like college friendships where like totally. this is the that's what it does. Yeah. This is the this is the weird kid that you yeah. find like Absolutely. outside the party who feels fucking as strange as you do and yeah. Um, also. Yeah, having just gone to uh, Amsterdam and just been to Anne Frank's house, I've been waiting for, like, a quiet moment to just put this LP on with headphones on and just, like, yeah. Yeah. I love this record. I love this record so much, um, and... I don't know if you if you if you feel like you've heard the the hits too many times. I implore you to listen to the second half of it because the second half of it the last is where it gets like it. transcendental to me. Yeah. The yeah. last song on it does one of my favorite things, and I'm such a sucker for this. But of him just like playing acoustic, and then you hear him like walk out of the room at the end of the tape. Yeah, like, that's pretty. It's a, it's a smart move. Yeah, it's good. It's yes. good. Smart you know, move. you know why? You know who did that really well? Rap Boys, Vagabond, my favorite band. <laughs> uh, Vagabond did do that too. Yeah. Um, Good shit. I know you guys want to talk about new metal. Yeah, oh, maybe. Hold on, hold on, hold on. We didn't talk about Built to Spill, though. Oh, fuck. Keep it like a motherfucking secret. Yeah, the best Built to Spill record. It is the best yes. Built to Spill yeah. record. Like, far and away. Built to Spill is yeah. one of those bands that I like. I own this record. I own a couple others. I don't put them on that much. I don't. I think it's another thing where in the past five years, I've seen so many bands kind of go for it. That I'm just kind of tired of it. Sure. It doesn't diminish what they did or my enjoyment of it, but it's just right now it's a weird time for me to try and throw it on. Sure. I, I just think this is like the perfect era of Built to Spill. <sighs> it's such a so good. Like like they're they're kind of there's they're still reigning in their pop sensibilities, but then they're just going on these like extended jams that are just like. And when does the live ooh. record come out? That uh, is one of my favorite maybe live that records. Year, actually, I think too. it's like ninety nine or two thousand. Right but yeah. they, when they play Cortez the Killer, and you're just like, oh yeah, oh this is like the foundation of this fucking era. And, and you hear it in the last track, uh, Broken Chairs, where they're just like, it, that song is so dense and <laughs> so heavy, and there's just so many like they, they get. Tars, the tones, oh, it's just something else. Um, new metal. Have at it. It was a thing. It was a thing. It was a big thing. Huge. What, so Follow the Leader by Korn was this year. Uh, Fear Factory's Obsolete. Um, System of a Down. System of a Down. Yeah. I would throw the Marilyn name. Manson. Marilyn Manson. Yeah. This is, 
not new metal, but I'm going to throw it in the bucket it's for adjacent. this point. It's adjacent. Is Napalm Death's words from the Exit Wound. Okay. Uh, which is their kind of... This is like we're living in a post-groove metal era. Yeah. You know, Pantera has hit. Rage Against the Machine has hit. Sepultura's Roots has come out. Soulfly's a thing. Soulfly's mm. a thing. A lot of people... Limbiscuit is also a band at this time, but not didn't release anything this year. Yeah, they're just kind of the ball is rolling for them. Yeah. What is your take on new metal? Oh, I don't really care for it unless it's the Deftones. Um, See, I never got into the Deftones. Like, what, uh, what, what is the? De- I know so many people love them, and I don't mean it derisively, but like, what's what's the stuff I should try? Oh, White Pony. Okay, White Pony is a brilliant record, and even like a. a the the post um, Chi and Akoma records, so the dude from Quicksand playing bass on them. Okay. Those those first two are fantastic too. All right. Um, I just think it. I think the Deftones are a very interesting band, and like I remember the first time I heard White Pony, I was like blown away because they're a band that's taking aggression, and they're taking elements of hardcore, they're taking elements of shoegaze, of post punk, sure. of goth music, and like blending it in this like just strange, strange sound. And I mean, they've always I think been. She's a or, uh, Chino's a very. Uh, uh, dynamic from it too. Well, they've always been a band I've respected, is what I'll say. Yeah. Like never one I've been super interested in, but like yeah, and, and the fact they like toured with a lot of hardcore bands too. Yes, at the time or like hardcore Jason. Yeah, like post hardcore bands puts them in a unique space. But yeah, like new metal, it was definitely it was just in the zeitgeist at the time. It would get bigger <laughs> in the next couple of years, but like you know, it was it was around me. I liked some of the singles I heard from certain bands, but it's not something that I, it was never my driving force. It was yeah. never the, the yeah. shit for totally me. Totally agree. I, I think there was some, I, I think I enjoyed Fear Factory a little bit in the Deftones, obviously, but the rest of it, like, oh God, cringeworthy. But I think yeah. it, it's important to bring it up because if you look at, let's say, uh, heavy music today, you have hardcore music taking a very large shift into totally. something that is very new metal adjacent. Totally. I mean, Code Orange was a driving force in that. A band never liked, but nah. whatever, do your thing. That new Vane record sounds like Mud Vane, fittingly. Yes. Um, but, you know, and a lot of it, the reason I brought up that Napalm Death record is I, I've been re-listening to a lot of their stuff, and, and their mid-90s output sounds like a direct influence on a lot of stuff, mm-hmm. and it doesn't get brought up because that's considered the band's, like, worst output or whatever. Yeah. But I see that very clearly. Like, we're, we're seeing a rise in that again. Yeah. And I'm not mad at it, but it's it's really not my world. No, it's not my world either, but it's important. To talk about. Well, the thing I, I brought this up earlier is, like, the reason I hesitate to shit on new metal at large is because I think so much of that has happened publicly and da da da, and there are ills with it and huge problems with it. But I think exploring like the class dynamics inherent, uh, uh, like inherent in that music, where these bands were coming from, who they were speaking to, they were really resonating. You know, though it was a white male focused thing, I do think it was music that was really only kind of addressing like the lower socioeconomic strata mm-hmm. in certain mm-hmm. places, and that's Absolutely. part of why it took root. Um, there's good and bad in everything. And I think it's good that maybe those people found a thing that was at all artistic. Yes. Uh, but is it that good or valid to me as art? N- not really. Yeah. Well, also, I mean, like we all loved emo music of that era and, and totally. So on. we talked about saves the day being a problematic band at some point in time because of their lyrics. Like if you look at corn in their lyrics, like, yes, we may think new metal is problematic for, Lots of different reasons. One of those things being, you know, propagating like white, shitty white male culture. Like, man, those are some 
that's some dark shit. Well, yeah, that I mean, especially shit, with Corn, yeah. him seeing so much exactly. about like childhood abuse, yeah, and like using some like slurs, you know, in their song titles, like the f word, but about it being used at at him, yeah, you know, like mm-hmm. th- there was an interesting like true kind of outsiderness to that band specifically, yes, that I think a lot of the others didn't have. Um, they're not. I've seen people I know in recent years become more like open about like, yeah, I'm kind of with the early stuff. God bless. Not my thing, but like I can see why I can right. understand why more than Olympus. Yeah. You know, you want to hear shout my out, story about, uh, let's say shout corn, out to those who like new metal corn song, uh, the F word that, that we yeah. don't really use anymore is. So I, I worked for a company that did, um, uh, sports pictures, so your soccer team is getting your pictures taken. Ooh, oh, I worked for a trophy. company that like we went out to different towns and, you know, a photographer came, uh, you know, somebody like me who's just like in charge of putting the kids in line together is I, I went out there, too. And so I went with I went to a, I went on a trip with this kid who was a photographer who was probably 19, 20 and I'm 15 at the time. And I'd never really interacted with this guy before, but he's driving us to wherever we're going. And it was early in the morning because all of these things start at like eight o'clock. Mm-hmm. And so I, you know, he, he picks me up and then he's like, he's like, hey, is it cool if I, if I put some music on? I'm just like, yeah, honestly, I'm like going to fall asleep. Cool. And he's like, all right. So he puts on, he puts on some like radio metal sort of thing. And he starts singing, mm-hmm. like, starts singing, like, aloud. Mm. And I'm just like, well, this is weird. Yeah. And then as we're going, he's like, you know, I, I guess, like, a little bit more comfortable with singing louder and louder. Okay. I'm like, this is fucking strange. I'm going to sleep. And I fell asleep. And I wake up to him screaming along to the song by Korn, with that title and i'm just like what it was weird and then i work with this guy for four hours and then he drives me home and you know what he does when we get in the car he fucking turns his music on again that's my new metal memory wow um yeah that was weird holy shit Uh, so you have issues well done (laughs) uh i feel like we can't get out of here without talking about Fugazi's and hits. And hits. Oh, we didn't 19, talk about Discord. 98 Lungfish also put out Artificial Horizon. Yes. One of the best bands of all time. Yes. I yes. am getting into Lungfish. The best band. As a band, as a person with a Lungfish tattoo. One of the most. He starts so many sentences. I've got a lot. Uh-huh. Uh, but you got to put I've it I've got out. a Higgs tattoo. It's cool. Yeah. The, that band is unparalleled to me in so many ways. Artificial Horizon's fucking great. And his sleeper fugazi record yes very much fucking so. great yo you so. want to talk about like art pieces Whew. yeah and they don't make it they don't make this thing accessible no it's like it, the late era of i honestly like my fugazi ranking is pretty like reverse 
chronological. Like, yeah, oh, absolutely. I well, think that I like. I repeat. I like the argument Repeater's the great. best. I like argument Repeater a lot. The argument's best. the best one. It's, it's oh, so no fucking you know, good. If anyone and disagrees, I you're just really, a really yeah. love in on the kill taker. Like, yeah, yeah. probably number two for me. But end hits is like that's like a fucking epic novel yeah. that shit is like yeah. there's so much that you have to just like it's, invest it's very intellectually listen there it's funny because for years and hits like i kind of rank lower and i think it's maybe i heard it at a certain time and it didn't stick on me and then it's really come back around for me where i'm like yeah. whoa yeah hey, i feel like that's like, where oh, yeah. it is for oh, yeah. for a lot of people is that you don't like end hits right away late it, period fugazi is just oh god it's such they're a on another they're, fucking planet. Yeah, and like, absolutely I, brilliant. I think like I've been spending, uh, I've been spending a lot of time like listening to so much of this music, just thinking about it in terms of the shape of punk to come. And there were several times where I was just like, "Yo, you want to talk about? You want to talk about people that were blown, refused yeah. out of the fucking water yeah. in the like art punk world?" Oh, well, this is I'm, another one where I was that, just like. And- there's another big one, and it's this band's worst record, but I would say equally important, Unwound, Challenge for a Civilized Society. Yeah. yeah. Which is, in my opinion, not their strongest material. And it's, I think it's sandwiched in between their Some two of the best. best. The two their best, yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. so like, there is that too, but Unwound and Fugazi are really the totems of that, who like, I think took yes. it further, but they're, they're in such a weird place. Well, because Unwound they're, is they're not, so separate. They're not necessarily yeah. fitting into the punk world. They're not necessarily fitting into the indie world. Exactly. They're kind of just, they occupy a very strange territory. Like, Unwound, like, touring with Juju. Like, yeah. that's, Yo, that's but the like, band they were But the thing about with. Fugazi is that, like, if you're 16 years old, like, of course you know who Fugazi is yeah. because you know who Minor There's Threat is. There's more of a direct sure. connection. Yeah, yeah. sure. Uh, also, just, just to talk about Lungfish, because I love Lungfish. Yes. They're my favorite band. Yes. Um, What's your favorite record? Indivisible. Okay. Yes. Yeah. And in fact, I think that this Artificial Horizons has the uh, uh, poor placing of being in between two of their best records, Indivisible yes. being in '97, Unanimous Hour in '99. Um, That's what hey. that is. Uh, uh. But I, I, it just blows my mind that no one really cares about this band. Well, the people that do love them. Yeah. But like, you want to talk about a a band that just like they they had their their focus and their sound yes. and they just continue to develop that one specific thing every single release and God. just to push that farther and farther I mean you get to the end of like I, I kind of sorry we went on a tangent no, no, no. here no this is good but you know you talk about Fugazi's the argument being like the pinnacle Fugazi record right and the same thing with like Lungfish Feral Hymns oh, it's being my favorite like, yeah, oh, I love yeah. it so much. It's yo, a I'm record. stuck on talking songs for walking, and I'm it's not great. moving it's on. Too, and I'm not moving like, on until the next one, until I'm over this fucking record. But you because have, I think it's, it's so kind of like similar to Fugazi, where they released like their last record, and it's like the ultimate statement of what that band is. And yeah, the same thing. It's goes the for perfect like, evolution. Like, where oh, Feral Hymns is just like it's such a powerful record. What what I will say this, and this is going to relate to something we talked about earlier, but what unlocked Joan of Arc for me was realizing how much Tim loved Lungfish. Yes. And how much this music is about repetition. Yes. yes. And finding grooves that make you uncomfortable and consume yes. you. And like to me, like Talking Songs for Walking, amazing record. Yeah. I think Rainbows from Adams is maybe one of the weakest Lungfish. Mm-hmm. Everything after that, like including Necrophones, which I think people shit on a lot. It's good. But it's good. It's good. There's not a clunker in there yeah. to me. There's some that are stronger than others. Like Pass and Stow is maybe a little too long. Yes, yes. But definitely. like, 
And I would say the same thing for Artificial Horizons. I think there is there are a couple of filler tracks, and usually their records do tend to have like you know there's a couple of instrumentals, maybe a weird little like someone's just toying around on an organ, but. Um, his lyrics oh. are just listen to from this record, uh, Shed the World and Prayer for the Living, which yep. come right after the other. Oh, fantastic, incredible! And also listen to Indivisible, just listen to Longfish. Okay, yeah, Longfish, best band, and the story 1998. Good year, good, good year, weird year. year. A lot of things, a lot Strange of things ending, year. a lot of things beginning, and we're beginning something right here. Episode one of the Patreon exclusive uh, content for As You Were a Podcast about Alkaline Trio. We hope that you have enjoyed this time. I had a goddamn blast. It was a good time. Thanks for coming, Pat. Listen hey, to Crossfire. We forgot to mention Unsane, who you're Whew. playing with tonight. So oh, thank yeah. you for putting David and I on the guest list for the show. Uh, oh, we are really yeah. excited to see you there, and to Fucking again the guest list spot. I don't know if you heard me say That's that, funny. but it's very nice of you. For um, really, hey, Patreon.com/slash as you were. Uh, if you're into this sort of thing, you'll get it monthly, and we will find like new and exciting things to talk about. Um, so yeah, hit us up on that. We are now on Twitter. Yep, at as you were pod. David's also at DB Anthony. I am at Better Yet Pod. Uh, we've got an email address. Yep. As you were, podcast at gmail.com. Hit us up. Say hello. Um, you know, we are super excited for, you know, a new phase of, of doing this thing where, you know, we get together and and enjoy uh, the time that we spend and the conversations that we get to have and things we get to learn. So we will see you next week on the regular podcast. And very soon again on one of these for you subscribers. So talk to you then. Thanks, Bubba. Bye.